Hello and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater, your podcast for cinematic disasters, the misfires of Hollywood history. And this week we bring you a very special film, a film that most of the fans of the series that it's based on would rather it didn't exist. And that is the 2017 adaptation of Stephen King's The Dark Tower. Not just one book, not just two books, but an attempt to digest the entire seven book series down to a 95 minute Hollywood action film. And uh, joining me as always is my sister, Catherine, and I am your amiable co-host, Tim. And we are here to discuss this very peculiar. I mean, for a a guy like Stephen King, who has had so many of his works adapted uh, in a variety of mediums, television, film, audio, drama, you know, so, <laughs> everything. everything. I mean, anybody who can adapt Stephen King is just going going ham <clears throat> to uh, to do so. And this one though stands out as a particular mm. or a particularly missed opportunity. Mm. Uh, because of all the things that Stephen King has written, there are few things that are more beloved by his fans than the Dark Tower series. Seven book magnum opus that if you have any interest in sort of gazing into the mind of Stephen King and seeing what is rolling around in there, you will find it. It's his, it's his narrative junk drawer. Um, it is. It's where he puts all of the ideas that, that fascinate him. I, I'll, I'll be upfront. I have, I have a very special interest in Stephen King. Um, a third of my master's thesis was about Stephen King. I mean, not that anyone cares, but I just, I'm a huge fan I, of his work. I care. I think, <laughs> I care. You care. You're on this podcast with me. You're on this journey with me. Because this I was am, also another one of my ideas. <laughs> Let's watch the Dark Tower movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, will so say, I saw this in the theater opening weekend. I, and I was I, that excited. And what is your problem? Because, well, um, this movie. Yeah. Um, I knew it was going to be bad, well, but I was like, I got to go see. I got to give it a try. I... I have kind of this weird relationship with Stephen King adaptations because I love them, even the bad ones. I mean, I, I even enjoy, you know, Langoliers, Tommy Knockers, you know, I, mm-hmm. I enjoy them in, in a sort of, I, I like bad movies, <clears throat> but I also love uh, anything that can take King's work and adapt it successfully. Um, for what it's worth, I do think Stanley Kubrick's Shining is a successful adaptation because it takes not necessarily, you know, the the narrative thrust of The Shining with it, because it, it doesn't. Um, no. But it takes sort of the nuggets of terror, the nuggets of surrealism, and sort of everything that makes Stephen King's horror so textured and fantastic and... Um, and it, it encapsulates all of that in a very short and very digestible film. And I, I love it for that. I think it's it's absolutely masterful. And of course, it's Stanley Kubrick and I'm a snob. Um, no, yeah. But I also... I also am so disheartened when people swing for the fences with Stephen King. Like they, they take one of his big works... And they just. And this is a big one. Maybe this the biggest, is a. This yeah. is probably the biggest. And they just do a big poo poo doo doo. <laughs> this and this is such a poo poo. Oh my god! Yeah. 
Um, it's 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 a rare, just total misfire on nearly every level. There are a couple of saving graces that we will absolutely talk about, but from a narrative standpoint, just as a satisfying film to watch, uh, even if you have no idea what the Dark Tower is, even though all you of the marketing <laughs> that led up to this, you know, tried to make it seem like that's you know that's who they were appealing to. <clears throat> yeah, it's it's a it's a mess. Uh just a, a huge mess. Uh feels like a much larger film that was carved down to a very very small film without a whole lot of ideas of how to make that work. I genuinely thought this was the first installment when mm-hmm. the film I think was, a lot of people did. was gearing up for release. Sure. And then it became very clear that this was it. This was this was all there was. Yeah. Um but I do find it I think at some point in this process, this was thought of as as sort of the first story in this because this is a, okay. So this came out in 2017. Uh, between 2015 and 2018, Sony, who owns this property mm. or the film rights to it, was was all about setting up these little micro production companies inside of Sony to handle big franchises. And this is one of the two that actually made it into like the public. The first one was Ghostbusters 2016, which was technically produced by a subset of Sony <laughs> called the Ghost Core. Right. And you can see that logo at the front of the film that that Ghost Core company was intended to sear the Ghostbusters franchise into a new era. I, I believe that name, at least for a while, was attached to the new uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife film that. Jason Reitman uh, is making, um, I think it's Jason, I don't remember, um, whatever Ivan Reitman's kid is making another Ghostbusters uh, with Paul Rudd. And and that was supposed to be like their steerage. And you'll notice at the beginning of this film that it is Tet Productions, which is an obvious reference to Ka-Tet, which is the huge, you know, sort of, it's Stephen King's understanding of the wheel of, of you know, time yeah. and space and energy. You know, it's, it's, it's his life. It's... It, you know, obviously a sort of personal philosophy about the world that he's developed and to explain things. And it shows up in a bunch of other Stephen King stuff. But so it's obvious that somebody at Sony was like, oh, this is going to handle all of our like Stephen King franchise stuff, which at the time Dark Tower was supposed to be like the preeminent piece of that. And obviously that didn't go anywhere. And, and this film is probably why because it's bad and why would you make more of these um but it seems so terrible on a conceptual level from top to bottom so i guess let's uh, i want to talk more about stephen king adaptations in general because i agree he's he's one of the most oft uh, adapted writers that we have today um say for maybe like john grisham you know, but it's uh, John Grisham's, you know, fallen off, right? Nobody's really adapting his stuff very much anymore. A couple of TV things here and there. But Stephen King seems like every couple of years, if not more often, we get an adaptation of stuff. You know, Lissy's story is coming out with. Uh, um, oh, gosh, I can't think of her name. Uh, but I mean, like, you know, Stephen King adaptations are happening all the time. Uh, obviously, the explosion of it. Well, I mean, when you write um, five you know, or six also, short stories. On, on your way to the kitchen, but some of them are bound to end up <clears throat> as Somebody's television shows, movies. Yeah, and, it makes and Stephen King very famously is very malleable when it comes to adaptations. He he is not demanding as an author. 
Uh, he's not precious. He doesn't he, care. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's more than willing to take that check and then just say, you, you guys go have fun. Well, um, ultimately, it's one of the things I admire the most about him is that he sees every adaptation as like, well, I already wrote the story, so... I don't really care what they do with it. That's that's yeah. their idea. Like I, he's very open when he thinks they suck, which I also yes. like. <laughs> um, yeah, totally. Um, you know, the the I guess the most recent thing was the stand on CBS All Access <laughs> now Paramount Plus, uh, which a lot of people didn't care for. Apparently, it ended better than it began. Um, I I haven't watched it. I don't have Paramount Plus. Uh, streaming and I, I don't have any intention of, of getting it anytime soon because I don't need to watch the entire history of NCIS at my fingertips um, by any stretch. So, so I'm, I'm not probably going to see that in any you know legal way, but his work adapting any book is hard, flat across the board, mm -hmm. adapting any book from anything can be ex extremely challenging because they're different mediums. They do different things. What? They accomplish different and, things. We and know they're this. just able to communicate things in a different way, in a different dimension. Right. And and I respect any film that can do even a passable job of making a book into a visual thing. Right. And and Stephen King, I think, poses specific problems oh, because so much of what is on the page is internal to characters. Um, Stephen King, while his plots have become very famous, right? You know, clown killing children in small town, right? Like those people think of plots, but really if you read Stephen King, his books are about characters mm -hmm. and what's going on inside of them. And the plot in most cases is entirely secondary or designed intentionally to push the characters in interesting ways to see where they go. And if you want, if you know anything about Stephen King's writing style, you know, he uses this analogy constantly of like having this red thread, uh, you know, on a, on a, you know, coming out of a hole in the wall. And as a writer, he's just kind of tugging on that thread. And every time a little bit more comes out of the wall, he's like, Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's interesting. You know? So he's not one of those writers, you know, you you watch like James Patterson's writing masterclass. He's like, well, you write an outline. It's about two pages. You do this thing and you just kind of spit out what you it's want to do. It's very functional. Like that's a very it's, functional it's, style of writing. It's and very it's, practical. And it, it works in a, a lot of settings. Like I, I think that that style is, really great for like film and television because you know you have especially tv series where you have like a weekly setup and you really do only have so many minutes to tell a story yeah, you've and got to this get formula you gotta fit it in there exactly yeah. and there are authors who have translated that into books into very successful careers where they say like i am going to write four books this year so i probably need to sit down and figure out what those four books are going to be about and that that's and what execute, patterson yeah. does and i i mm -hmm. really love that i you know, I'm a I'm a copywriter and and professional writer myself. I respect that kind of just daily grind and hustle to it. But King is not that writer, and I think right. so he's many got people all the daily grind and hustle, that. but not with that kind of direction. Not that kind right? of storytelling. Yeah, and as a result, his stories tend to meander. They tend to not always end well mm -hmm. because I don't think he plans for the endings. Um, he just he lets things happen narratively in his stories and he's a capable enough writer that he can pull that off. But when you go to adapt something like that, you are left with challenges because there are moments in a King book where characters make leaps that you go, well, how how do they know that? Why would they do that? And in the moment when you're reading the book, you don't really think about it that much. But when you're trying to execute a film, you kind of have to know those things and have stories 
to back those things. And and so King just presents this problem out this this problem for adapters because he just has so much in his characters on the page and you lose so much of that just through the translation to the film medium. And we we have to acknowledge that there are some directors who seem to be able to get it right. Yeah. Um but really it's just a couple. At this point mm-hmm. you've already mentioned one and that was mm-hmm. Kubrick. Not because he adapted the story of The Shining outside of Man Goes Crazy in Hotel. He understood he the ad- visual language of King. The language of, of that, what it looked like, what it felt like. He got it tonally, right? Mm-hmm. The, the terror of watching someone you love devolve into this monster that you now must fear. Mm-hmm. Right? That's, that's the terror of The Shining, right? Not, you yep. know, the man made me scared of my own blood. dad. <laughs> yeah. You know, and and I I listened to a really good uh, podcast called the King Cast. Oh, King Cast, Scott um, Wampler, woo! And yeah, like uh, I love it. And and they just had Mark Z. Danielewski on there mm-hmm. talking about. Oh, they were talking about Cujo, I think. No, it wasn't Cujo. Was it Cujo? I don't remember. I think it was Cujo. But they got into a discussion about The Shining, and Danielewski, you know, said that really he reads The Shining as you know, very famously, King has, has wrestled publicly with his addictions and demons, um, you know, specifically through the 1970s and 80s after his fame hit and he had money and resources, he kind of went wild. And and obviously that took a tremendous toll on his family. And and so The Shining, it's very easy to read that book as a dissection of what King saw in himself, right? Um, because there is a, a core of sympathy for Jack Torrance in The Shining the novel where you can feel it's almost King himself saying, please understand. I, I didn't mean to do this. I didn't mean to have this happen. And I think the reason why King hates that adaptation so much is because Stanley Cooper removed that. Yeah. yeah. There's no sympathy for him. Um, so, but anyway, so we've got Kubrick who, who gets the tonal beats of the shining correct and crafts one of the most you know memorable horror experiences of all time. Although that movie does not play to modern audiences. I'm so sorry to say this for those of you who may not realize it. If you, if you like take a horror fan from today, who's like grown up on like the bye bye man and you watch the shining, they're just bored. Depends. And it's so sad. It depends. It I depends. mean, obviously I taught everybody's a difference. Um, in, in a, in a film class to those types of people because they were all teenagers um mm-hmm. they were born in like 2004 at the point that point right so i i've done that before and it's if you explain to them you know ahead of time that that this is what film was like if they understand you know what other movies were like they can appreciate you know people can appreciate why the shining was such a big deal but right. if you watch it not understanding what movies were like in 1980, holy shit. <laughs> well, then the same goes for something like The Exorcist. Yeah. Uh, the Exorcist doesn't play that well to a modern audience because it's it's slow, it's methodical, it's boring. But again, when you say that most of the films coming out in the early 1970s were, you know, silly dramas and, you know, all of these kind of ridiculous. Yeah, movies like Love Story. <laughs> yeah, you know, like it's it was shocking. So there's a context to it for sure. So Kubrick, then of course, uh, the the next wave of successful King adaptations begins with Frank Darabont. Um, although the Shawshank Redemption was not a success, like it it 
came to be successful because they bought it cheap to run on what TBS and they ran it like every day for six years. And so tons of people saw it and, and were like, oh, wow, this is actually really good and very moving. So Shawshank Redemption was initially a failure, but then grew to be successful. After that success grew, Darabont came back to the well. He made The Green Mile, which was successful, but it also had Tom Hanks. So obviously. Oh, I love Tom um, Hanks. <clears throat> Tom Hanks, I love you. <laughs> and then, uh, of course, he, he you know finished out his King trilogy with uh, The Mist, uh, which is... <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Mist is a problematic film for a lot of people. I, I really love it. But the reason why I love it is because it grabs at the story that King was trying to tell in The Mist. The Mist is not a story about monsters in The Mist. The Mist is a story about characters trapped in a single location, losing their minds because they don't know what's in The Mist. It's very much and like The Thing. Yeah, it's it's sort of that same. I mean, there was a lot of fiction coming out in the early 70s and 80s, which is is when The Mist was written. Mm -hmm. That was was paranoia fiction, right? It's like it's fiction that expresses our internal feelings of we don't know what's coming. Politics and society. I wonder why. Yeah. Right. I mean, the Cold War, you know, obviously is the you know the big you know elephant in the room. But even just the internal politics of American society at that time, it was very much you can't trust anyone, can't trust your neighbor, can't trust the person that lives down the block from you. You know, they're all murderers. They're all trying to kill you. you know, it's just <laughs> that kind of thing. And and so that was reflected in a lot of fiction. And that's what the mist is about. Just as the the adaptation of the thing from another world that you know carpenter produced in 82 or was very centered around those themes same the same thing he took that story and turned it into a story about cold war paranoia and and i think that that king specifically when he writes something he tends to have that that sort of what if question that just pops up and you know those things pop up as a consequence of the world that we live in and that's Mm. why his work it resonates with people that's why he's so popular yeah he (laughs) speaks to very very human themes Um, and human ideas that are very much in the zeitgeist. And so Darabont seized on that in the mist. I love the mist. Um, There is it's easy to come by now. I had to rebuy my original DVD of it because they did a re-release that had the black and white version, which is how Darabont wanted to do it because his take on the mist was to, to make it almost like a 1950s B movie, Mm -hmm. you know, single location kind of film. And so he had this, this vision for making it black and white. And I, I wanted that version. So I rebought it. And I think now it's on all of the Blu-rays because you can put, there's plenty of space on a Blu-ray to put a black and white version of something. And, and so I, I advise watching it that way because it just crafts the tone that Darabont's working so hard to craft is just further reinforced by that. That's uh, that, you know, particular cinematic choice. But so um, then Darabont made the walking dead and then Darabont pissed off all the people who own The Walking Dead, and now he's in movie jail, and he's not making movies anymore <clears throat> because he's suing AMC for bajillions of dollars. And so, in in Darabont's absence of being able to adapt King well, because he understands not just the story itself, but what King's trying to do with the story, um, which is the core thing you need to retain, right? That's really it. If you don't tell the story specifically, that's kind of okay with King. But what are the ideas that are driving the story, the themes that connect with people that make them love it? That's what you have to maintain. And Darabont, very, very good at maintaining that. Mm. 
Whereas now that he's in, in Hollywood jail and nobody will work with him, his mantle has been picked up by Mike Flanagan. Who I, in my opinion, adore. Uh, that's right. So Mike Flanagan at this point is probably best known for the Haunting of Hill House series on Netflix and his follow up, The Haunting of Bly Manor, which he was less involved with, but I think still his, his, you know, shows. But uh, he also directed uh, a horror film that's very good called Oculus. Uh, which, I loved uh, that movie. I thought that was so cute. It's a very good movie. It's it's super low budget. It was based on a student film that he did. Or it was very a student silly. Film, it was an early film. It's a goofy horror premise, oh, but it's executed it. very well. Um, but it's a lot of fun. And his his first King adaptation, um, I'm trying to remember where he he started. I guess it was, wasn't it Gerald's game? Yeah, it was Gerald's game. Yeah, that was his first one because he. He actually did um, Ouija uh, Origin of Evil, the, mm-hmm. the second one. Uh, the first Ouija is terrible. It's, yeah. it's just another watch teenagers die that in had one mar- good marginal interesting in ways. One good but moment. Ouija, it was the strangulation with Christmas lights. I liked that. <laughs> yes, that's, that was good. Nice and a nice visual. Um, but Origin of Evil is a much better film. It's not a great horror film because it's not that scary, but it's, it's a really good story and it's executed very, very well. Um, so I, I really liked that one. Uh, there was also Absentia. Enough. I really liked that movie too. He made Absentia. That was uh, his film before one. Oculus. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he made Before I Wake, which is is a surprisingly effective little horror film. It's it's not fantastic. It is it is not. But it was an early Jacob Tremblay joint before Jacob Tremblay was really a thing. Um, but uh, he has worked with Tremblay ever since, and. Uh, you know, Tremblay is, is, is a good child actor. Uh, he's on the, the he's somewhere on the Haley Joel Osment scale of child actor, right? Like that little you know, boy he's, was he's, adorable until we had just had enough of him. <laughs> well, he yes. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, people forget that, he, you know, if you think of The Sixth Sense in a positive light, if you enjoy that film, I enjoy that it. is because of Haley Joel Osment because yeah. that kid carries that movie. He's backpacking that thing up Mount Everest. It's, pretty much it's all him by and Tony Collette. They're they're really yeah. the most charming and wonderful things about the movie. I mean, I, I watched and, it not too long ago. And it was it was fabulous. And the reason why it's considered a career defining performance by Bruce Willis is because it's a part designed specifically for him. In that, it's someone who doesn't need to emote. He just needs to sit or stare in a general direction. Bruce Willis playing a dead guy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's perfect. Oh wait, spoiler Bruce, that, Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, spoilers on this 20, 20 plus year old movie. Um, yeah, I. But like, it's that kid like is backpacking that movie, and, and in many ways, Tremblay has that same kind of ability. He even does. though I don't think he has gotten into films, his films have not been quite that good, but. Uh, although he is really good in the room. I mean, that's the, the yeah. film that made him, him that was, famous. Was Flanagan has made Gerald's Game in 2017, which was a film that which was a Stephen King story that uh, by even people who are Stephen King fans was considered unfilmable. Oh, because my God. the story I, of Gerald's Game is about a woman who is handcuffed to a bed and for the entirety. And just the the traumatic things that she recalls, because it's a lot of, you know, flashbacks and memory stuff. I read that book in mm-hmm. a day. Um, yeah, it's it's a fast one. Yeah. It's it's just very compelling and and very scary. But it's her confronting a lot of personal trauma, and right. the subject matter that the book has to deal with 
is very I I just when they announced that they were turning that into a movie, I'm like, of all the things that he's written, you're gonna try that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the reaction. Everybody was like, dude, what are you doing? Why? Why would you pick that one? And that was his first King adaptation. And, you know, people both in just the film industry in general who are aware of the story were like, you're out of your mind. There it is no way that's going to work. It features a degloving scene. I mean, come on. It does. Oh, yeah. my God. Like, it's it's very difficult. And King himself has talked about how he kind of wrote himself into a corner with that story and didn't know quite how to get out of it. Uh, I think Joe Hill has shared a story that that King called his son Joe and and was like, I'm going to throw some things at you and I want you to tell me kind of what might work. And so they were kind of like trying to work out the mechanics of of how this would go and and like I, apparently like Joe Hill was up in a bedroom trying to like do some of the things that his dad was like, do you think this would work? And, and his wife came at the time came in and was like, what are you, what are you doing? And he was like, had one of his kids in there. <laughs> he was trying to like, see if they could figure out the mechanics of, of how she might escape and stuff. And, and yeah, so it's, it's a complicated story and Flanagan kills it. He kills it. That movie is great. Um, it's, it's as uncomfortable as it needs to be. It's totally on point. It's acted to the moon uh, by Carla Gugino, who is, is one of Flanagan's muses. Like he's got her in everything. Um, yeah, it's it's just it's really good adaptation. And then, quite frankly, a film that I hope to talk about on here in its own episode. But I'll, I'll give a little preview. Uh, he made Doctor Sleep, mm. which I I love. I love Doctor Sleep. Um, I don't think it's a great. I mean, it's a sequel that nobody wanted or needed. Right out on the table. Stephen King didn't have to write a sequel to The Shining. We didn't need to find out, you know, catch up with Danny Torrance 20 years later. We didn't need it. But I read the book when it came out in 2012-ish, whatever. And I enjoyed it. I thought it was interesting. I thought it had a nice a nice kind of resolution to it. Um, very much in keep. It's, it's an interesting thing to look at to see who Stephen King as a writer was when the original Shining was written and who he was when that was written, right? The, the progression, not just as a writer, but as a person that Stephen King has gone through in, in the 30 intervening years. Um, because I, I think it shows that Stephen King has developed a much more sympathetic worldview. And I think it has revealed how deeply King can come to love his characters um, and, and want to see them get out of impossible situations because he loves them and he wants to keep them alive. Um, so that being said, Dr. Sleep is fine. It, a lot of people hate it because it, it does things with those characters in that world. I mean, okay. The story of Dr. Sleep is about psychic vampires who travel around the world in RVs and eat kids and eat kids shine basically. Like that's the story. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. And if you're not okay with that, if you're not okay with psychic vampires led by a lady who wears a funny hat being the villains of that piece, then it's not for you. <laughs> it's 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 okay i mean that's Just stephen king's that's stephen king's approach to his entire career it's like i wrote a story yeah. about this but if you mm-hmm. don't like that i have all these other stories i have other stories <laughs> read one of those instead there's plenty and i'll be writing that, three more tomorrow and you might entire, like one of those <laughs> An entire section of your local library that has my name on it. Just go pick a different one. Just it's fine. I'm good with it. I like that he's very unapologetic. If he wants to continue a story yeah, 30 care. years he's after do it. 
doing it, I think that that's fine. They're his characters. It's his universe. And mm-hmm. like you said, if you don't like it, there's others. There's others. Um, and so I, I, in some ways, I think too, very famously, King hates the Kubrick adaptation of The Shining and most people. I think he's when, made his peace with it. He's, yeah, he's fine with it now. It's, it's, he understands what it is. But I think in some ways, Dr. Sleep was just his attempt to reclaim his story as his own. Because in many ways, the narrative of The Shining is now in, irrevocably tied to the narrative of the film of The Shining. And, and I think it was him just putting his stamp back on that story and saying, this is how it went. This is what happened. Don't get confused, you know. And so Flanagan then says, I'm going to make Dr. Sleep. And again, the, the king of verse goes like, what the fuck, man? What are you doing? Why are you adapting this sequel nobody wanted to a story that nobody cares about? And, and, and again, a story that's incredibly difficult. It involves psychic powers, traveling gypsy psychic vampires in RVs. Uh, a tiny girl who has a shine as powerful as Danny Torrance's. Um, maybe child murder because Danny Torrance leaves a kid with his, his OD'd mother in an apartment and steals their money. Like, you know, like it's, it's a problematic story to tell at the, at the worst. But then to translate that into film where most people associate the visuals of The Shining with the Kubrick film, but yet a story that is not tied to the Kubrick film I mean, basically, everybody went like, you're out of your mind. You're insane. There's no way this is going to work, Gerald's game guy. You're just going to screw this up. There's no way this can work. And then, by God, it works. And it works just fine. I, I love Dr. Sleep. Ewan McGregor is Danny Torrance. Gorgeous. Ewan McGregor perfect. is gorgeous. Perfect. Ewan McGregor has a perfect face. <laughs> Carl, Carl Lumley as an updated Scatman Crothers. Perfect. Absolutely. Ge- no digital de-aging here. No CG faces. No, we're just right? going to ask people to stretch their we're, imaginations a little bit like we used to. We're just going to find people that kind of look similar and we're going to have them act because that's their job. And then they're just going to act those characters and it works. We're also going to hire Henry you know, Thomas artists because Henry exist. Tom, the E.T. kid mm-hmm. as Jack Torrance, the elder. What? And- and it's perfect. And so again, so we've seen it ad- done well is what we it mean. It can be done. Exactly. Adapting Stephen King is not impossible. Does it often go wrong? Yes. Um, does it sometimes go right? Yes. Right. I it would just say more that rarely goes right. I, I very would, rare. I would say that like the. Typically it goes wrong. <laughs> typically you end up with the Tommy knockers. <laughs> Right. Or, you know, even something dream catcher. Oh, the shit weasels. (laughs) They're coming for us all. Um, Dream catcher, you know, and even the the middling adaptations that are very just like, eh, you know, like needful things um, (sighs) with Max von Sydow and uh, that that group. Uh, But I mean, it's just. Ed Harris, I guess he was in that. Yeah, Ed Harris was in that. I mean, that Um, was that movie was I don't have. The only thing I remember about that movie is the dog. Yeah. And when that's uh, again, the it's, only thing I can remember, like, it's I don't just think you completely did a great forgettable. <laughs> no, it's just forgettable. And, and, you know, you've got some classics in there. You know, there's some others like the dead zone. 
um, which is, is, is great. You know, I mean, obviously it defined a huge chunk of Christopher Walken's career, but it, it's, it is, it is difficult. Um, it, it's difficult to do. Right. And, and this unfortunately is, I mean, if we're going to look at the, the pee pee poo poo scale of, of <laughs> bad Stephen King adaptations, this one is, is way down there. Um, because it's just directionless. Right. There's just it doesn't know what it wants to be or do. And it's obvious from frame one that that's the case. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't pull a ton of of the failure here. The failure is total and complete. So I don't I don't think we need to spend a ton of time discussing what has failed about this film. Uh, but needless to say, it has a 16 percent on ye old tomato meter. Um, the audience score is a bit higher. It's a bit of a swing. It's about 45 percent. Um, so there are some people that enjoyed this. Okay. Um, but it's, if, if so, it's because I think they're probably giving the film more credit than it deserves. Um, which I will say I've seen this now. I've watched it three times. Uh, first time in the theater, two times since I bought it on Blu-ray on like a black Friday sale for like $2, which I feel was acceptable as a price. Um, and and it's it's fine, right? And I might use this to gauge the interest of somebody. Like, would they be interested in delving into the Dark Tower to see kind of what's going on in the Dark Tower? I might use this as a gauge to see, like, do you think this is interesting? Does this look kind of cool to you? Well, then guess what? There's something way better that will tell this story to you than hand them the book. But it's it's just terrible um i guess from a stats standpoint it's directed by nicholas uh nicolaj arcel a danish filmmaker who his biggest credit prior to this was making a film called the royal affair which had mads mickelson in it and and alicia vikander and is about uh about a one of the english queens marrying a danish prince or something and it's yay it's like this super quiet drama Right. Like it's good. I've seen some some sections of it. It's this Hollywood trend of finding directors of quiet, independent drama films and giving them huge blockbusters and saying, hey, you you can make a comic book movie. Anyone can make a comic book movie. Here's eighty five million dollars. Go make this thing. I mean, that's that's what Um, we've done. I mean, that's like the Disney machine, right? They just find all of these up and comers and then just eat them. It's it's so strange. And this film at its core, that's it feels so flat and so lifeless in so many areas that I I don't even know why a director would attach their name to it, because there's nothing here that says, like, this is my movie. Right. Like, there's nothing about this that somebody's going to look at and be like, oh, man, Nicolas Arcel. Nice. Uh, it's just, it's, it doesn't have anything. Yeah. So um, I guess we can lay out the basics of the story. I don't necessarily want to go into the specifics of the entire story of the Dark Tower. Um, I, we don't have time. <laughs> we, yeah, we. This is a podcast. It's Sunday. We're, it's and- Sunday. We're trying to keep this short, you know, so we can go have a, a fun Sunday day with our families. But read um, the Dark Tower if you want. Yeah, like that. That's probably going to be my greatest recommendation at, coming out of this. Is just if any of this sounds interesting. If if the line the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed triggers anything in your brain. If you just had a light bulb go off and you're like, Whoa, what does that mean? Then go read the dark tower because it will answer that question and it will do so beautifully. This film 
which takes that specific line and mm-hmm. issues it forth as a whisper from a character that we see for three seconds in the film later in the film during a dream from another character that tells you what you need to know, because that's one of the greatest opening lines in the histories of fantasy history of fantasy fiction. And, right? and it's great because it's, it does a couple of things. And I, we were talking about this before we got started. It does a couple of things. It encapsulates the whole series in a sentence. If you mm-hmm. ask me like the entire idea of it. Yep. Um, and it sets up a scene. It brings mm-hmm. you immediately in to the action that's already you know what that place. world you looks like. You know what that world mm-hmm. looks like. You can see everything as it's just sort of springing up and constructing around this sentence, this place that you've been drawn into. And that's the magic of the opening line of the gunslinger is it does pull you in and it sort of kicks off the imagination required to embrace the dark tower and to embrace all of the strange things that you're about to read. Mm -hmm. And boy, it's just, it's on all of these great opening line lists and the movie doesn't use it at all. No. So at its core, the dark tower is, is a story heavily influenced by King's own things that he loves. I mean, he he speaks very openly about where the story came from, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Clint Eastwood's Man with No Name series. He says that basically, you know, that character was his initial rough idea of what Roland might be. It goes in a very different direction, obviously. But just that idea of sort of the lone, the lone gunslinger out in the desert trying to survive, chasing this enigmatic figure. That's what kicked it off. So Really, um, Roland, Roland DeShane, Roland of Gilead. I mean, again, it's a fantasy story, so we've got lots of kinnings in there, lots of people who are identified by where they're from, you know, all that that typical fantasy trope stuff. The the story is about his quest to both preserve the Dark Tower and protect the Dark Tower as as a gunslinger from uh, an evil wizard, uh, the Man in Black, uh, Walter Odim. Randall Flag, you know, whatever you want to call him, one of Stephen, Stephen King's, King's you know, double characters. <laughs> yeah, it, it, they they generally and have W's or R's in their names, and, and that's, they, they do bad things. And that's another thing to remember about the Dark Tower is that this is sort of a dumping ground for a bunch of archetypes and and character building that he does in his other books as well. Mm-hmm. Part of yes. understanding the book series and why I really don't think it should be a movie is that you also have to understand Stephen King's main and his his universe as it relates to like this world and mm-hmm. how it relates to the dimension in which the dark tower takes place. Right. So this and just this is so complicated. <laughs> it's so complicated. So the the entire story the the idea is that at the center of all things at the center of a multiverse if you want to call it that mm. Um, stands a, a, a monolithic tower, the Dark Tower, and it sends out energy. And this is explained in a very bad opening opening text crawl uh, at the beginning of the film and, and then a, a brief scene. But basically, the Dark Tower is like a protector and it keeps the bad things out of our universe in a very it, just to keep it as simple as possible. The Dark Tower emits an energy that energy prevents these these pieces of evil from around the, you know, that exist outside of our reality from breaking through and wreaking havoc on us. 
Um, to give you some context of that, that universality of King's writing in King's universe, Pennywise, the clown or the, the creature that Pennywise, the clown is, is one of these dark things that Mm -hmm. slipped in, right. That got in through the cracks and, and then set up its, its camp in our world to feed. And so like, imagine bajillions of those just everywhere running around doing damage and, and destroying us from within. It's a very Lovecraftian, like if you're familiar yeah, with, with H.P. Lovecraft's stuff, mm-hmm. work, like that's where that concept is kind of born, I guess. Yeah, it's it's King's internalization of, of Lovecraft's particular brand of storytelling. Yeah. And and it's and it works. It's it's good, right? But King has these little pieces throughout all of his his work uh, of these things existing. And and so you know you once you read the Dark Tower, you can kind of see all of these pieces of, of tissue that have tied Stephen King's little universe together. Um, and, and that's, it's great. It's an, it's a fun little thing. It's like a, you know, it's like watching the prequel star Wars films and seeing all the little Easter eggs that George Lucas has intentionally sort of filled them with. So you can be like, Oh, right. But it's King doing that over the course of 80,000 pages of writing. And, and it's, it's, it's cool. Right. But so the dark tower at its core is this very simple story about Roland trying to stop the man in black. And then all of the things that he runs into the people that he meets, the lives that he changes, the mistakes that he makes on his way to do that. And it's, it's great. It's a, a wonderful modern fantasy series, right? If, if you've been interested in fantasy, but like Lord of the Rings style fantasy wheel of time style fantasy, just is not your thing. Then this is a one to try yeah. because it's somebody taking all of those ideas and then really putting an interesting spin on them. Um, you know, something unexpected, you know, and it's, it's, it's good. So, you know, again, we can't recount the entire story. Don't want to. And it's a good thing that we won't because one of the, one of the little tricks this movie tries to pull to justify all of the bullshit that it's about to throw at its audience, who is aware of the dark tower is that when we meet Roland late in the film, which makes no sense, he has the horn of Eld, um, which, uh, again, this is not a spoiler cast, but Roland has an item, let's say, that is important to the end of the book series. And this Roland has it already. And if you watch any of the behind the scenes stuff, the concept that they were running with is that this is not a retelling of the Dark Tower series. This is a sequel to the Dark Tower series. Which makes no sense. Which is dumb. And I mean, whatever. Right. But one of, you know, Roland makes some key mistakes in the Dark Tower series, like really important things. And the filmmakers wanted to use this as an opportunity to make him undo some of those mistakes, to make different choices. And so this is this is meant to be or is, is set up at least in their own minds as they were putting the project together. Not an adaptation, but a a new story being told on top of the old. And it's a dumb idea. <clears throat> and it didn't need to be that way. And you can tell that it doesn't work. Uh, so, yeah, it's it, it's something that I think if they didn't plan for it from the beginning, which they try to make it sound like they did. Um, they came up with it at the end to try and justify how bad the end product was. <laughs> um, 
and it's it doesn't work. It's real. It's real bad. Uh, so bad. I guess we need to acknowledge that this film was the initial the initial draft of this film, not the final shooting draft. But the initial take on the Dark Tower was written by none other mm. than Akiva Goldsman. Uh, saying his name causes me physical pain. It just oh. it makes me hurt all over. It makes my body feel pain. It's like it's like rheumatoid arthritis for my brain. <laughs> It's, um, I mean, this movie has had a, the stink of a lot of stinky people all over it. Yes. And people who I like, but I just, I would never want them to make a Dark Tower movie. No, no. Um, so Akiva Goldsman, if, you, if you're not familiar with the name, you've seen it. You've seen an Akiva Goldsman joint, uh, or I guess Akiva Goldsman. Um, the, one, the one film that I will name that Akiva Goldsman is, is directly responsible for is Batman and Robin. Yeah. He wrote that film. He wrote Batman Forever as well, which is equally problematic, slightly less so for a couple of reasons, but he wrote Batman and Robin. He wrote I, Robot with Will Smith, one of the, the many failed film projects of our our, our good friend Alex Proyas. But, but bafflingly, he also wrote I Am Legend, the screen adaptation he, of that. He did. Um, and that, and and maybe it's, it's source material, but got to be a little bit. Matheson was a genius, yeah. but but wow, how can yeah. you do those things and then and then do that thing? He wrote a beautiful mind, which is a film that I enjoy. Uh, he also wrote Cinderella Man, which is another film I don't hate. Uh, he wrote most of the adaptations of the Da Vinci Code books, um, which are awful. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> He he's just he's one of those dudes that's been in Hollywood forever. He has written on tons of things. He's written tons of things. He's he's punched up things. He's just been around forever. But his movies tend to be if we give him the most credit, they tend to be the most kind of Hollywood pablum that we've come to expect from the last 30 years of Hollywood. Right. Just the. We know this is going to this is going to be a blockbuster, guys. This is going to be the one that makes us billion. Like it's that kind of writing. Movies That's that what just Akiva feel Goldsmith very does. assembled and very mm -hmm. commercial. And I, I don't hate movies like that. I don't hate movies for being commercial, but they do have a distinct feel. <laughs> it's easy to tell when they're like that. Right. And. I mean, he unfortunately now is tied to the Star Trek universe, which mm. causes me just no end of pain. Um, not because I hate everything. I hate, I hate modern Star Trek. It's, it's acceptable, but it is someone trying to make something inherently non-Hollywood Hollywood. I realized that the last couple of mm. Star Trek series that have been on the air have just filled me with anxiety and made me wish for the times when Star Trek wasn't on the air so that I could just remember the times that it was and be happy about it. Yeah. <laughs> but now when it's, it's actually on and running, I'm like, oh, this could be so bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, yeah. It's just, I don't know. So he, he wrote the initial version of this 
And supposedly, or at least in the, the behind the scenes stuff for this was given credit as the guy who came up with the idea of like starting, starting after the main dark tower series and just kind of kicking off a different direction. Um, and it's, it's, it's a bad choice. And, and if that was the original intent, if that's what they had in mind from the beginning, then the entire project was doomed from the beginning. The other problem with this film, and this is something that goes against what we typically talk about. This film is 95 minutes long with credits. And if there is one thing that I will say about the dark tower, it is not that it is short. Uh, it is the longest thing that Stephen King has ever written. It's seven books. Wizard and Glass, the fifth book, is like 1,200 pages on its own. This is a massive story. This is a huge story. And, and I I feel like it. it's... When I watched this, um, it was with my husband, who is not... He's not a, a like kingophile. a... He's not a He's not a king reader. He's not... Even like a, he's more of a news reader. Like he reads nonfiction mm -hmm. and articles, magazine. Like he's that kind of reader. He's like our dad in that respect, because that's what our sure. dad reads. Doesn't read fiction. Um, he would love to. He always remarks that he wants to get into reading fiction. And I tell him about Stephen King's books after I read one. And he says all the time, like, I would love to read that because he's a huge history buff. So I, I recommend things like 112263 because he loves mm -hmm. JFK. Um, but he is intimidated by the sheer size of a Stephen King novel. And there are shorter ones, but the Dark Tower series just on a shelf is enormous. Like I yeah. own not even the whole series. I own some of them. And like you can you can see shelves buckle under the weight of these books. They're so huge. They scare yeah, it's, it's people an intimidating, off from reading. It is an intimidating thing to jump and, into. And so the idea, the mere idea that you could try and boil down these Bibles, these absolute Torahs of weird science fiction fantasy into a 95-minute film is baffling. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know anybody who would have said that they can condense it down. <clears throat> and as you, we were talking about before we started, even just if you had decided to adapt the gunslinger, I, I don't know if that could be 95 minutes. I, I really just don't know how that would work. Um, the, the, the unfortunate thing is that this movie did so badly and put such a stink on the dark tower name because of it that a television series in development supposedly at Amazon was canceled and was meant to be a, a sort of prequel of Roland growing up being trained by court learning about all of you know sort of Gilead in its prime before the fall all the stuff that wasn't in the movie that I wanted to see all the stuff that people wanted to see exactly um, and, and it was canned unceremoniously late in its production or pre-production i should say apparently they shot the pilot like a pilot exists somewhere of that and it is good by all accounts very good because the dark tower like many of king's stories is only going to benefit from time right just the time to explore the world 
Um, a lot of the issue with adapting somebody like King to the two hour film format is that there's just too much. You just can't do it justice. You have to cut too many things and you lose too much of what makes the story unique. And, and that's really what's happening here. So I guess let's, let's delve in. I don't know if I want to go scene by scene through this cause that's painful, but let's, let's just sort of start at the beginning and kind of work through it as, as we go and sort of break down what, what works and what doesn't. So the biggest don't know for me, as I was sitting in the theater with my wife, who's very long suffering and puts up with me taking her to see these terrible things. We're sitting in the theater and opening text crawl. And I'm like, oh boy. Because context is not bad, right? Okay. Like having context for what's going on on the screen in front of you is not bad, but I want to read to you what they decide to tell us at the beginning of this film with this text crawl. Because I think it says a lot about how little they understand what this story is about. So again, one of the greatest lines in opening history is available to them. The man in black fled across the desert. The gunslinger followed. Okay. You could just write that and just get us started. Right. But no, I, oh man, I had so many ideas on how this movie was going to open with that line. And this is what Uh I gave us. That's right. So instead we get, a tower stands at the center of the universe, protecting us from darkness. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. I'm with you movie. I got it. Tower darkness. It is said the mind of a child can bring it down. What? Excuse me. Okay. So there's a giant monolithic tower that stands at the center of the universe or multiverse. Right, because because they don't even get that right. They they don't even understand the story that they're going to tell us because they say at the center of the universe protects us from darkness. Later in the film, it is clearly explained that it is a multiverse. Right, we're talking about multiple universes all together, not just one multiverse. So not even the people who are making this movie understand what the Dark Tower is. And that is when all of the alarm bells went off. And I was like, oh, my God, these guys don't even know what the story is. They don't even understand how this works. The mechanics of this universe are completely foreign to them. Right. So whatever studio executive I, I know at some point, this textural had to have said multiverse because they must know. But some studio executive wrote a note and was like, I don't understand what a multiverse says. Say universe. Universe makes sense. And well, they just and replaced it. Perhaps more insultingly, someone prob- actually probably said, look, your average moviegoer isn't going to know what that means. Mm-hmm. No, uh, I, 100%. And every choice in this movie, I think you could trace back to a studio note mm-hmm. that is some executive in a boardroom saying, I don't know what that means and nobody else will know what that means. Yeah. Just insulting the audience. Like a lot of this was just insulting the audience and thinking that no one would ever understand a story like this, which is bullshit. These are best selling books. Yeah. They're, they're beloved by millions of people, millions. And not just people with PhDs, you know, regular people. I mean, these aren't complicated as in you can't understand them. They're long. (laughs) The the great thing about Stephen King is that if you want to read him academically, you can. It gets very problematic when you do because there's lots of like weird stuff (laughs) in his stuff. 
<laughs> but yeah, like the whole point is this is accessible fantasy fiction that is beloved by, by many. And even those individuals are going to read that opening crawl, right? Tower, tower stands at the center of the universe. Just one of them protecting us from darkness. The mind of a child can bring it down. How informal is that? Oh, mind of a child is going to bring it down. Bring it down, Steve. We got, we got some construction to do. Bring that down. It's like, what? And just, what is it? Not mean? can destroy it, can blow it from existing. You know, like, yeah. no, they can bring it down. Bring it down where? If it stands at the center of the universe, just one of them, where's it going to go? How would they get to it? What would the mind do? Right. And so it, it's, it's the worst kind of opening text crawl because it explains nothing, right? The point is to tell me something essential so that I have needed background information for what you're about to show me. Nothing about that helps me understand what's going on, right? So I, I bought the Scream Factory release of Event Horizon and, and rewatched it not too long ago. Um, it's a lovely Blu-ray release. It's a, a 4K remaster, which unfortunately has not done much for some of the compositing work and early 3D special effects in that film. It was a different time. It still looks good. It looks very good. And the practical effects are well, chef's kiss. But the opening crawl of that film is like three screens, I think. And it's like, you know... The history of space flight, you know, 2047, we make it to the moon or we make it to Mars to 2065. We, you know, develop our first extra solar, whatever. Like it takes us through all the steps. And then it's like the event horizon is, uh, you know, the first ship to be lost in deep space. Six years later, it reappears. Right. Bam. OK. Do we need Set that? <laughs> yeah. Do we now the bad thing about the event horizon text is we don't need that setup to get what's going on because no. all of that is explained to us later in the film, literally in one scene with Sam Neill saying, here's what happened. So we don't need it, but if you're going to put a text crawl in front of it, at least now I have usable, actionable information that I exactly. can use to answer questions. Right. So if you're going to do it, you know, this is more like the opening crawl of the dark or of uh, dark city where it's like, this means nothing. This means literally nothing. I don't need this. This doesn't need to be here. Who cares? Right. And so then the film makes the just baffling choice given again, one of the greatest, most straightforward openings in the history of, of fantasy fiction, modern American fantasy fiction. I'll, I'll, I'll narrow it down for those who are inevitably screaming into their, their cars. Like, that's sorry, we insult your favorite. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, but modern fantasy fiction, especially non heavily genre fantasy fiction, one of the greatest openings, fantastic line, brilliant visual. And what do we open with here? We open on a blurred out image of a, a public speaker system. That's where they chose to open this film. Now, I know what they're doing because when it's a little blurry, it looks a little bit like a tower. That was the that was the thought. I know that was like the you thought. You could have used that anywhere. Yeah. It's, Why now? So and it's like, okay, so you just you have title, The Dark Tower. Music rises, blinding light. Dark Tower. Oh, it looks a little bit like a tower. No, it's just a public access system in a, a little village. Isn't that cool? It's not a dark tower at all. 
So it's like, okay, were you subverting my expectations? Expectations I don't have. They didn't really have any. (laughs) Because I I didn't need to see it. You just badly explained to me what the Dark Tower is. but And then you showed me like a fake out version of one. So congratulations. What, What were you trying to accomplish? And so then we open at a facility. Now... Again, I I don't want this to be the Dark Tower spoiler podcast uh, because it is a great book series. If you haven't read it, I'm honestly still working on the last book. Uh, It's just. I know the story. I'm well aware of it. It's a lot up on it. It's just a lot. And and I'm kind of like podcast audio. You don't have to apologize for not finishing a book that is the size of a fucking religious text. (laughs) Like that's not (laughs) no one is going to be upset with you for that. (laughs) Right. But they they open the story. So the first book of the Dark Tower was written. It was a series of five short stories all collected in what fantasy and science fiction magazine that he then reworked into a book more cleanly in 2003 to make it work with the rest of the series. And then he kind of, for about a decade, he released a book every couple of years in that series up to the fourth book. Then he took a long break, came back with the fifth book, Wizard in Glass, I guess. And then there was another long break and then six and seven came out relatively close to each other, if I remember correctly. So the fourth book is where the universe really starts to gel, right? Like you can tell that's kind of where King started really actually thinking about well, how are all these elements going to tie together? Because the first three are really, I mean, I, I don't like to think of any book as being random. Like They're nothing very vignette-y. is random in a bubble. But it's, it's yes, it's very much like the characters go to here and they yeah. do a thing. Well, it's, and, it's serialized. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you write something that is intended for serial publication, you have to write it in very sort of measured episodes that, that feel compartmentalized because, you know, people are, are only getting this, part published Mm -hmm. but they also have to be part of a larger fabric you know that's that's where the professional aspects of writing kind of show a little bit and you can tell when king was writing for sort of different mediums and formats and and publishing features Mm -hmm. sorry (laughs) no absolutely and and so the fourth book the wastelands is, is where things really start to come together as far as like what is walter's plan right like what is he trying to do and so these elements that were shown here at the first of this tiny little sort of ramshack, it looks like a summer camp, basically, uh, with all these kids in it. This is where Walter is is attempting to utilize the, uh, you know, in the film, they just straight up call it the shine. That was not necessarily what I was referred to as in the books. I hate it, hate it, hate it, um, because that was, that was Dick's thing in the book. Yeah. And that just, that bothers me so much. Like, right. if you're going to pull something that is so king- and so specific, at least understand the context that it was used in. Mm-hmm. And and God, they don't they mm. don't get it at all because they mm. think the Dark Tower stands at the center of the universe, uh. not the multiverse. Um, and so this scene really wants to emphasize a couple of things. A lot of kids, some really sad things. Um, you know, they're, the kids are playing and having fun. There's bird's eye view of a merry-go-round. And then, you know, the weird skin suit people, which this film is obsessed with, um, which is fine, whatever. They didn't, that is just not something from the universe of the books that stood out like that to me, though. No, no. I mean, that's a very, were they around? Of course, the, you know, the the skin suit rat people that Walter uses. Yes, they're there. But to be one of the main 
antagonists of this story, like the main antagonists that our characters run into, is just so strange. And I mean, I know you're not going to do like the slow mutants or anything. Like, I, I get that. Like, you're not going to have them go down in the mine and fight the slow monsters or <laughs> slow mutants or whatever. But it's just, it's so weird and it's so obvious. Like, you know, they're twitchy and they just, their necks are always craned and cracked. And it's like, okay, I get it. If any human person saw somebody like this walking around, they're going to know something's up. Like, come on. It's just so yeah. obvious. And and not all of them do it, which is the other dumb thing. It's like some of them are like twitchy and weird. And, and then you've got like a Thomas Middleditch looking dude in there who's like, <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm just I'm just the nerdy guy. And yeah, it's like, there's no consistent behavior. There's no it just ugh, so cheesy. It felt cheesy. That was, I guess, why it bugged me so much. It's like this. Nothing about these books feels cheesy to me. Mm hmm. And you just went straight for it. <laughs> yeah, it went right for the cheese. And so an alarm sounds like an air raid siren. And, and some kids have these little bracelets that are flashing and they walk toward, you know, big reveal. Oh, there's some weird technological monstrosity on the other side of this very normal looking summer camp. Uh, not to mention the fact that there's 1919 written everywhere so that our main character will be able to remember that number. I, I just. It's just so obvious, dude. It's just obvious and dumb. And for a movie that all of the people involved said, we just wanted to make this really understandable for people who didn't know the story. I'm like, well, you didn't. Yeah. You didn't at all, right? Because seeing a bunch of crying children with a bright light sucking their brains out or whatever, and then shooting that at the Dark Tower, which now we do get a look at instead of, the weird light pole that was supposed to be the trick dark tower, I guess. And how do they think they're helping me? Right. How do they think that that image is going to make any sense to me as a person who doesn't know what the dark tower is? I know what the dark tower is and I'm still going like, really? Yeah. Is that what that looked like? Cause that's not how I pictured it. When, Again, yeah. my, my husband watched this with me and, and he considers me like a, a King fan, you know? And he kept looking over at me and going, is this, is this what happens in the book? Is, is this, <laughs> no. is this how it happens? And I just, I didn't even know where to start. I was like, no, no. I mean, this may have happened. It I does. Guess, it does but happen. It wasn't yes. written about extensively or important in any way. Like I said, it's, it's starting in the middle, right? It's in Medias yeah. Race, which King in some of the background stuff even said they've chosen to start this in Medias Race. We're actually more like in the fourth book and then we work back to this, this, you know, describe stuff that came earlier. And like, which I'm, I understand from a practical I get that. point, yeah. but like you also chose to do it this way. Right. Like you chose to make only one movie. <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah, it's just it's it's just baffling because it's packing it's packing a great deal of information in. And we're still not we still have not been given enough context to really process what it is. And so if you can give the movie its time and space, it will kind of explain some of these things. But it, it just is doing a terrible job of it at this point. So my biggest beef with this movie. Apart from some other large beefs, because I have several. My biggest one is that it makes the narrative choice from the start to make this a movie about Jake Chambers and not a movie about Roland of Gilead. Uh, which, and I don't understand why they would do that. No. I, I, 
I do understand why someone in Hollywood would want them to do that because fantasy stories, when being retold to an audience that may not understand the complexities, a fish out of water, you got to have the cipher character that can ask the questions that can be the audience stand in and say, what is the dark tower? Are those rat people? And, and I'm, I'm, Mm-mm. I'm going to throw this out there that one thing um, that we talked about extensively just while watching the film was that the Dark Tower would make a fantastic video game. Oh, yeah. No, oh, I like totally. For uh, sure. Just it's a, a beautiful great video game world. Open world. And you don't even have to be Roland. But but ultimately, and why I bring this up is, is that you want to be Roland. You mm-hmm. want to see Roland. You want to be him. Yeah, he is so cool. Um, just, just so cool. <laughs> yeah, and and for it's the movie not, not to let you see him as much as possible and experience events through him in the film as sort of a, a narrative focus, it is so frustrating because it's like it's like showing you a fantastic movie in the background of a really bad one. Yes. Where it's like, I see it and I just want more of it. I just want so much more Roland than I get in this movie. Um, okay. So this movie, as we've said, is 95 minutes long, including credits. So that means that the actual film is about 88 minutes runtime. Jake Chambers does not meet Roland until 27 minutes into this movie what the fuck that is straight up a third of this film is over before the main character meets jake now we see roland in two dream sequence slash flashbacks i believe maybe maybe even just one i think it's just one i only where we see roland's dad played by dennis haysbert um die and we have no context for what's going on. Absolutely none. Um, because it's it's obviously meant to be the fall, like the great battle that yeah. uh, preceded Walter, you know, destroying the gunslingers and, and taking control of, of his little slice of the multiverse. The movie certainly doesn't tell you that, though. And it's, it's just all backgrounded, man. But I, I cannot say how disappointing it is to have a third of this movie pass without Roland being a consistent on-screen presence. Yeah. Like, like, don't get me wrong. Like the kid, the kid does a good job. Like he's fine. Well, he's a good little actor. He's, he's doing great. Um, Tom Taylor, he's, he's in a bunch of stuff. He's good. Um, but, but what? All what? of the, all of the stuff of him with Roland was wonderful. I loved their little relationship. Yeah. I, I thought they had great on-screen chemistry, but just, it took so long. To yeah, get there. They aged Jake up a little bit for the film, which you know, King did in his revised version of The Gunslinger as well. In the in the original version of The Gunslinger that I read, you know, because my relationship with the story started when I worked at um, I worked at a, a large national retail chain. And the policy of that large, large national retail chain when uh, books came to an end on their shelf life was that you ripped the cover off. And sent the cover back to the publishing house for your, you know, refund or whatever you got back for for housing the book for a time. But then it was destroyed, right? They would just throw it in the trash. So I worked for them at the time, and 
I knew when they did this because it was on a like monthly schedule. And when it happened, I would go through them all and I would take all of the books that I thought looked interesting. You are the reason that none of my Goosebumps books have covers. <laughs> I, am a, I am a dirty book thief. Um, <laughs> I, I looked at it as like, you know, you don't want to throw out that donut, right? Like that donut's perfectly fine. I'll take it. You can pretend that you threw it out don't and we'll just, this. nobody needs to know. Um, so there was a time, uh, when I was, you know, 16, 17, that, uh, my bookshelves were filled with coverless, (laughs) coverless books and, and the gunslinger was one of those. Um, I had read Stephen King before my earliest Stephen King reading memory is actually of needful things. I believe that was the first one that I read. Uh, I don't know why, uh, my room was the bookshelf room at our house when I was growing up. And, uh, both of us were, and, and, you know, so I would just grab stuff off the shelf randomly and read it. If it looked interesting and needful things had a pretty decent cover, looked interesting. Um, but so gunslinger was one of my, when I was a little bit older, I, I was like one of the next Stephen King books that I read and I loved it. I, I loved it. it. This was before the rewrite. This would have been like 96 ish, 95 ish. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was before he did the rewrite in 2003 and in that, I remember Jake being like nine. Yeah. He was a little, he was a little kid. Like he was this. And, and in, in the, the gunslinger story, Roland is kind of doing his thing. And then Jake just kind of pops into existence. Like he meets him at like a roadside diner, basically. Yeah. And, well, and, and I, a lot of King's work when he writes children, he writes exceptionally precocious children. Mm-hmm. Like he likes to make them young and then give them these super wizened brains so that they're these incredibly complex characters. And I actually love the way he writes kids. Um, So it, it made sense to me that they aged him up in the film because that, that fit a little bit better. It needs, it needs to happen so that, you know, he can actually have conversations with Roland. But so we, we open with Jake and we get a a sense of, of who Jake is in the original Jake is, is just kind of dropped into Roland's world. It's eventually revealed that he died. He was hit by a car or something, uh, which again, I think got retconned a bit in the later version. Um, and, and that's basically what brought him to Roland's universe. And in this one, we, we get a lot more information about Jake. Jake draws all the time and he is drawing his dreams and memories uh, of this dark tower. Um, but more importantly, Jake is in a, a, step home right his father was killed in a fire um he was a firefighter he was killed in the fire and and so jake has, has had a bunch of trauma over that and is really struggling with it so we see him meet a therapist his mom sort of deals with him i mean their relationship is pretty good i guess like i, I think most of this works okay except his stepdad is just way too big of an asshole it's like oh my god just super villainous like yeah and 80s step parent like, like I'm thinking those eighties family movies where the step parents were always just the worst people on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> they, you know, they actually like said things like, I'm going to send you to boarding school. Right, like, that like, doesn't I want happen. Your, I want your mom all to myself. You little Ugh, bastard, you know, like so that stupid. kind of like, Oh my God, dude, this is just, nobody is this. And it, I, I mean, he gets his just desserts or whatever. So I guess it's fine, but it, it just, it's so super villainous that you look at it and go like, okay, if this mom loves this kid as much as she claims she does, 
and they have this great relationship that's going to anchor key points. Why would she be with this dude? Like, what in the world would possess her to be like, well, this guy's kind of a jerk. He treats my kid like shit. But like, I don't know. He's just got but this I just thing love him about so him. much. He's, he's forklift certified. He's got this fantastic beard. Uh, he's balding a little bit on top, but his beard is just really full. I just, I can't <laughs> leave him. Why would I leave him? I mean, I he doesn't like my son. He wants him out. He talks about killing him routinely, but I just, I, I, there's something, it's a joie de vivre I can't put my finger on. Um, and it's like, I don't get this. And, and it's yeah. one of those things. He's so mustache twirly that it's like, you would just kick him to the curb. Like no questions asked. And so. Jake is, is struggling. He's struggling at school. He's struggling at home. Struggle, 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 struggle. Like he's having a bad time. He's a, he's a jacked up little kid. Dang. And so, but the scenes used to convey this to us are so bland and devoid of personality that they just really don't even register. Right. So like, no. why is Jake having trouble at school? Well, he's sitting in the corner drawing. And then the same kid that plays Henry Bauer in the It movies. <laughs> did you realize that it's the same kid? Oh my god! Uh, it, I'm so just this, a, I'm just a bad kid. The It movies must have just been his redo. Like Sony was like, "Oh, we're sorry that you were in this like really crappy Stephen King adaptation. Let's put you in one that's going to make some money." Um, he comes up and he just takes his notebook and starts looking through it and be like, hey, "You're an idiot! Draw, draw, kid, draw, boy, dummy, uh. dummy." <laughs> And he's like, give me my book back. And then they get into a fight. And then comes what may be the greatest line in the movie. I I, I watched this oh, with my family. My God. So they start fighting. And then this presumably a teacher comes up and separates them. And we then she's like, home. Jake, you need to go home. And my wife, who's sitting right next to me as we watch this, is like, said no teacher ever. <laughs> um, I am pretty that's sure a, that that's illegal. It's against I don't the think, law. I don't think you can just walk up to a kid. I mean, if that were the case, that when I was a teacher, I would have told all my students to go home all the every time. Every day. Every day. Every like, hour. Hey, hey, I know. I appreciate you showing up, but you need to go home. <laughs> go home and cool off. I don't yeah. want to see you back here again. I was like, what? Like, that's not how that works. <laughs> You just like send a kid home for fighting. He goes and sits in the principal's office till his mom comes. But that wouldn't make sense because then the next scene we see him and he's just at his therapist's office instead of getting in trouble for punching a kid in the hallway. And again, all of this just feels so disconnected. It's like, okay, well, what? Okay, so we went from school to the therapist. It all feels like stuff that was much longer or there were more scenes of it. And then they've just kind of plucked out stuff to leave it in to try and make some sense of this first act of the film. And it, it doesn't really work. There's a lot of little little King references in here. I think the they want for some reason to keep the audience off balance about whether or not Jake's dreams are true. OK, and this is one of the things that I, I hate when movies do this, okay? I'm fine with a character who is dreaming or hallucinating or seeing things that, that we as the audience shouldn't necessarily be aware that they're real. And you know, questioning the, themselves in the process. Right. The sixth sense. Yeah. We've already mentioned it, right? The whole, the, the twist of that film is that a character tells us right at the beginning, I see dead people. <laughs> we accept it, but then we just don't make the leap 
that one of the dead people he's seeing is the main character that we're intended to follow. I am so like, uncomfortable with how it. much the Dark Tower movie is making me defend M. Night Shyamalan. And I just, movie, stop it. Stop, stop it. it. Stop you're, making you're me do this. <laughs> and so, like, I'm fine with that, but it's on the poster, you guys. Like, yes. Yeah. You put it on the poster that it's yeah. real. So why are we playing this game? Where we is you want us as the audience to doubt whether or not Jake is insane. Yeah. Like why? Why are you doing this? Get us on his side. Help us understand that he's not. And that he's right from the beginning. And it's everybody else who needs to figure it out. It feels like the movie kind of wants us to be there, but then it's just constantly visually questioning Jake and his sanity. Because who is the one person who believes him? Uh, the crazy homeless guy in the the weird patched jacket, right? Like that's the guy who gets it. It's it's just, it's so off the wall and it, it's so unnecessary, right? Just like, let us get going. Why are you miring around? Again, this movie is 90 minutes long. Why are you screwing around? You don't have don't time. don't have time. <laughs> you know, and it builds Jake as marginally sympathetic. Yes, but it, it just is but unnecessary. It's, like, yeah. what was the purpose of making him so sympathetic? Because I don't feel like they built out Jake's character in the universe at all. There's, again, not enough time for that. So they dedicated all this this space in the film to Jake Chambers and did absolutely nothing in that space. No. Other than people don't understand. You know, it's like the only thing this movie has to say about being a misunderstood teenager who is seeing visions of another universe is nobody understands me, man. Nobody gets me. It's like, did you really, okay. did it take you 20 minutes to express that idea? And, and then I have a hard time staying on board with that mindset as you make friends with um, an interdimensional cowboy. Like, <laughs> I mean, your life has, has gotten a little bit beyond nobody understands me. Mm-hmm. So we just lose touch with who that character is and what's motivating them because it doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit at all. Right. I mean, I appreciate one of the consistent narratives in all of Stephen King's work is listen to the kids, right? Like that's, yeah. that's one of the consistent ideas in, in the vast majority of his stories. The children always have a window into the truth and the adults always suffer for not listening to them. So I like that that element is in this film because that's a very King thing to do with a child character in a movie, but this movie does nothing with it and it's, and it's basically dropped. So it's like you've spent all this time building that and then it goes nowhere. So, I mean, basically Jake is assaulted on all sides. He has all of these really complicated drawings, this really like there's just too much here for somebody to not look at it at least once and go, maybe there's something to it. But of course, nobody can. So Jake dreams of Roland. Um, we get the first recitation of the gunslingers creed. We get a couple of really big wide shots of, of these battles that have taken place at some point. Uh, our our first like it's not our first introduction to Walter, but our first like you know speaking line of of him, whatever Matthew McConaughey is trying to do with this character, I I really don't know. Um, I thought he was just bringing his default. 
it's it's kind of default Matthew McConaughey, definitely a little mm-hmm. bit with some malice on the edge of it, but not really enough. But like you can there's there are some special effect shots that show that there was at some point there was supposed to be a scene of this battle. There absolutely was in this movie. And they they ran out of budget. They ran out of money. Um, or they chose not to spend the money there. I don't know. But at Where some, did the money go? <laughs> it's, I, hopefully to Edris Elba's pocket, because he's the only one who deserves to earn anything off of this movie. True. Very um, true. Hopefully they just handed whatever was left to him, because without him in this movie, it is unwatchable. Even with him in this movie, and he is amazing, it is nearly unwatchable. But we... We get a flashback, big battle scene, Walter walking across the battlefield, just setting random dudes on fire, I guess, because the guy looks like he's dying anyway. I don't know what the point is, but he's he's evil, I guess. But it's meant to be like the battle, like the big battle that everything collapsed on. And then we have Roland and his father in a gully. Uh, it looks like maybe just yeah, there's behind no somebody's house in Southern California. What's happening or like what? what any of this is supposed to look like, feel like, I don't know where we are. No. I mean, just from a filmmaking perspective, you were purposely confusing your audience. Right. There's just no context for any of these scenes. We are just jumping and you are. What I think is these scenes were not filmed initially as dream sequences at all. These were, these were narrative beats written into the script and intended to be told in some kind of chronological order. And then the decision was made in the editing process to turn them into dream sequences because either they couldn't finish all of them or they didn't film all of them. And I would believe either one. And, and so (laughs) they took the vignettes that worked the completed sequences And then they just piled them together and said, well, people will believe that these go together because we're going to tell them that they're dreams. I seriously believe that that's how that that worked, because think about what would make for a compelling opening to a Dark Tower film. But to open with the fall of Gilead. Right. Like that's where you start. You show that battle. You show Roland lose his father. You show him chase, you know, beginning the chase. I guess for the man in black, right? If you didn't understand any of the things that made the gunslinger a special book. Yes. No, I mean, you still have to disregard all that. But if I'm like, if I'm Akiva Goldsman and I am like bog standard Hollywood. (laughs) God help you. (laughs) If I am bog standard, you know, Hollywood action screenwriter guy, I'm going to say like, all right, we need some background. We need some context. We're going to add some things in here in the beginning. We're going to have a 10 to 12 page sequence where we lay out the fall of Gilead. We see. Roland beginning his journey to follow the man in black towards the dark tower. And now we, but it's just completely misunderstanding, you know, anything that people like about the story. And then you segue to Jake or or whatever you want to do, but then you decide, Oh, we don't have the budget for that, or we're not going to film that. And and so now we're just going to cut all these scenes down into dumb dream sequences that don't make sense. And, and so Jake wakes up, he has a vision of the house that he needs to find. Like, Okay, so all of his dreams are established up until this point as having been of this of Midworld, basically. Like all of his dreams are of Midworld, of Walter, of the Dark Tower, of Roland, whatever. 
And then just t- tagged on at the end of his last stream is just a house in Brooklyn. <laughs> you know, because because why? And I get it. It's supposed to be the shine. He's supposed to be a psychic kid. He's, his dreams aren't dreams. It's navigating the psychic world. Like, whatever. Right. But it's just so nonsensical. But it's all of that. cringy. But all of that gets interrupted when his parents decide to send him away to a weird institution for weird kids in upstate uh. New York, because that's the most terrifying thing that could possibly happen. <laughs> and, and of course, they're the rat people. It's obvious they're the rat people because they're twitchy and weird. And they're and, acting so weird. <laughs> yeah. Anybody with two eyes and even just a partial like. Even if Hannibal Lecter cracked open your skull and ate most of your brain, you would still be able to recognize that these people are off. And at no yeah. point, if you are a loving parent, are you just going to hand them off and say, yes, put my kid in the van. Just put him in that van and just just whisk him away as, as well, apropos of nothing, you know. And I feel like I feel like the mom, even though they try to make her. Somewhat sympathetic i guess mm-hmm. is i i think that it's so over the top to set us up to be okay that they're killed yes no they and the film Jake is to trying okay to justify that too. yes the film is trying Even to justify it, that for sure it would have been better if they had just leaned into the the fact that i mean i mean you pull a pull a star wars you know luke skywalker losing his aunt and uncle he got over that pretty fast because he had a space adventure to go on like people will exactly People will accept that, you know, you've compartmentalized a character's trauma a little bit to to get on with the show. Mm-hmm. But it feels like they really wanted to go out of their way to be like, no, it's fine. His mom sucked anyway. Yeah, his parents are terrible. They deserve to die. And, and it's like, whatever. OK, I, I don't care about them either way. So what difference does it make? Like there is yeah. nothing in this film to make me care whether they live or die, whether they explode into a billion pieces or they get sucked down a train tunnel. I don't Wouldn't care. No one cares. And but then the film just really goes completely off the rails when Jake then goes to a random house in Brooklyn and finds a portal to another dimension. Just just I there. mean, what the And again, this is in the books. This is a yeah. part of it. Like this is a whole thing. It's like Stephen King is a writer who writes about cycles, right? Things that just happen again and again and again. And the whole idea is that our world is the same as Roland's world just before it moved on, right? Or after it moved on or while it's moving on. It it doesn't matter, right? Like the whole thing about this universe is King saying like, I'm just blending all these things and just go with it. But here the film tries to actually show us this technology and help us understand that it's technology. And, and it just, it's, it's just, it's dumb. It's just dumb. It's just, it's <laughs> dumb. dumb. It's, movie. The du- <laughs> it's not that what they're doing is bad. It's just the dumbest way to do it. It's just dumb. Um, and of course the, he, saw the 1919 everywhere on in his dream. So when the portal opens up, apparently you can open a portal to anywhere in any multiverse ever with just a four digit number sequence. That's true. <laughs> Cause you know, I that's, that's plenty of digits to determine location. It's fine. You know, lots of variations, variations there. 
Um, and so he goes through this thing after fighting the door demon, which again, it's a, it's a thing in the books, uh, and using his, his latent psychic powers to, uh, to, to escape. Um, and I will say, I, I watched, I, I watched this with my family, as we said, uh, I watched it with my kids. And I will say one thing about this film is that the special effects that are in this film are pretty good. Uh, I like the way the doors look as far as like portals to another world. Uh, so did my kids. Uh, my daughter specifically said, that looks really neat. That's it's a really cool visual. And I was like, yeah, I, I, I agree. I just wish it was in service of something that wasn't dumb. And so, you know, it, Jake finally makes it to the, the eponymous desert, right? It's presumably the desert that the man in black is following or the gunslinger is following the man in black through. Wish we could have seen that. Yeah, it would have been nice to open with that <laughs> instead of being 20 minutes into the movie before we get here and having absolutely no context for where we are or what's happening or anything. Um, I, I will say there is a deleted scene of the way station, the the one where, where they meet, like the diner, basically. The, you know, right. Mid-world diner. Uh, they deleted that. They cut that where Jake goes up and he shows them his little drawn picture of Roland. They're like, have you seen this man? <laughs> and they're all like, you don't, you don't want to know that well, man. And it's like, part of, what is happening? Part of the, the struggle with a scene like that is they removed everything remarkable and cool about Roland. Yes. Why? I mean, I'm just going to, I'm just going to be really selfish. I want to see Idris Elba in a cowboy hat. He had one. He is, there were there were behind so, the scenes shots of him in a hat, uh, and they didn't use him. I just i I tuned in to see him wearing a cowboy hat and being a gunslinger, like specifically because I like Idris Elba. I want to see him do that, and then the movie just didn't give me anything. <laughs> no, uh, the rest of his costume I think is great. the 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 leather vest, the the you know, the outrider coat, the, yeah. I mean, he, okay. I'm here. So close. Idris Elba is beautiful. Perfect. He's, Perfect. he's beautiful. Like there are, there are sculptures in museums that do not hold a candle to Idris Elba, right? Like the man is gorgeous and he looks so good in this movie. And even though he is, is, so not what I imagined in my head as Roland as I read. Just that's not what I saw. Not because King spends a lot of time describing Roland. He doesn't. He doesn't care to. King hates physical descriptions of characters unless it ties to something very specific. So I, did, I didn't care. But he's, he's the perfect encapsulation of that spirit of the character. The grizzled, mm -hmm. just sort of internally decimated years the voice, upon the years. Eyes, it's, the carriage. It's... It's everything that I could have possibly wanted. And yet, in this film, it is not at all what I imagined. No. <laughs> it robs me of, of the, the coolness of having Idris Elba play this character. Yeah, it's just, it's, I mean, if, if this movie had a subtitle, it would be Squandered Potential. It's just <laughs> the Dark Tower, Squandered Potential. And and Idris Elba being so wasted in this this part that could have become, I hesitate to say career defining because he's already had a couple of those, but like this could have been his 
I mean, this could have been the part that he's remembered for, right? I mean, this could be his his Legolas to Orlando yeah. Bloom, right? Where it's like, okay, yeah, you've done other stuff, and and like that stuff was good, but you will always be this because you were perfect for it, and you just got it. And as and, and now it's it's a joke. Like this will be the butt yeah. of jokes, and probably nothing that anyone will wish to remember fondly. And that's and so that sad. Sucks. It's so sad, dude, because he's perfect. Like he's perfect. I, I love him. And again, if there's a reason to watch this, we'll just I'll lay this out right now. It is for him. Watch yeah. it just to watch what he does with this character. He's a consummate action star, top to bottom. But and his his interaction with uh what's his face? Uh Taylor. Kid who um, plays Taylor. Yeah, mm-hmm. Taylor. Um fantastic. Mm-hmm. Their their little back and forth is very cute and and I I like I like the little relationship that the movie attempted um to build there and I I, I don't think the movie was doing that I think it was Taylor and and Idris Elba doing that together um yes yeah. probably out of sheer boredom just of being actors, on this project <laughs> like I'm an actor right I'm I'm gonna act for a little while today, okay, guys. You want me to like do something, or <laughs> do you have any like ideas about my character? Do you have any direction for this scene, or <laughs> anything? Yeah, I I really think that him and Taylor have good chemistry. Another one of my major beefs with this film is that it simplifies what in the in the novels is a complex relationship between Roland, because Roland is not. A, a father right like no. very very famously in the gunslinger roland does an abortion in the gunslinger um yes oh my god <laughs> with with a gun and it is disturbing horrific um so roland is not like a, a dad kind of guy he's not wholesome right? And this film simplifies their relationship to two men or two two people who have lost fathers who forge a new father slash son relationship. Like a found family kind of thing. Yeah. And it's it's so basic and straightforward. And, and I'm not saying that that wouldn't have had a place nope. in the story. Mm-mm. Like, yeah. it, it could have been really fine. <laughs> it could have been fine. It could have been fine instead <laughs> of being garbage. <laughs> yeah. But it was garbage. But I mean, again, a lot of this is a lot of this is is on Elba's back to sell it. And he does. Um, by the time this film is over, his relationship with Jake feels pretty earned. And mostly honest. Um, but it's it's just again in service of very little. Like it just it's it's not it it's not doing anything for the story. It's just helping to forge some kind of emotional bond between your two main characters. And it kind of gets there. Kinda. But so the that simplification I think is a missed opportunity to delve into the complexity of Roland's background it simplifies him into this just kind of lost soul who's just looking for a family he's just looking for somebody to care for again and that's not really 
No. What Roland is. Um, I we, mean, everybody is in a sense, but right. no. <laughs> right. I mean. He's got other shit going on. <laughs> and I guess the biggest thing, and again, the whole concept of this film is that this is not the story of the Dark Tower that we know. It's a, it's a, a another time around. Right. That's actually Makane says in the film, another time around the wheel, old friend, or last time around the wheel, whatever, whatever dumb line he delivers. Shut up, Matthew um, McConaughey. <laughs> but he. In the in the original Gunslinger story, um, Roland is, is confronted with a choice. Either he can continue his quest to find the man in black or he can save Jake. He chooses not to save Jake. Jake dies. Uh, yep. Horrifically. <laughs> And it's just this movie doesn't do anything with those complexities. And this one, Roland always makes the right choice with Jake. He's protective. He's kind. He's instructive. He's a dad. And it just if the film is trying to say that what would the events of the gunslinger have been if Roland had not been a giant asshole, then OK. But yet. What has changed that has made Roland not be a giant asshole anymore? <laughs> like, it's is, just does the he magic of knowing a child. Does he re <laughs> does he remember what happened last time, and he's consciously trying to do something different? Because if that's the case, that seems a bit unfair. And then why doesn't he already know where the Man in Black is and what's going on? You know, so I, I don't know. I, again, it's 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 very dumb. Uh, then as they, they start traveling, we get a few scenes with, with McConaughey. I guess let's just go ahead and talk about McConaughey real mm. quick rather than trying to break down the scenes he's in. I don't know what Mac Matthew McConaughey is doing here. Uh, he seemed very excited. I watched some stuff where he was talking about it. He's like, I was really excited to do this. And I mean, I'm sure he was excited about the paycheck. Um, I think he's very excited to be in movies yeah. and I'm excited for him to be in movies. I, I think he's a talented he's actor. He's very talented. Um... But, uh, the, but the, all right. So I imagine what it is. Here's what I think. Cause McConaughey is going to do what McConaughey do, which is great. That's fine. You hire him to do a McConaughey thing. He accomplishes the McConaughey thing. And he's going to bring his bongos and he's going to do some chanting and it'll be a good time. But what this feels like is a, is an incomplete picture of his performance. This feels yeah. like they have, they have very carefully cherry picked moments and scenes that had to be in the film to progress it from a plot because everything that Walter's involved in is plot progression. Everything. Walter does nothing in this film that is not directly tied to moving and advancing the story forward. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, and you could say that about most of the characters, but in McConaughey's case, he does not appear on screen unless somebody is delivering expository dialogue or he is delivering expository dialogue. There so for maybe twice he shows up to just do something malicious. Right. Like, I guess that little girl who's eating the ice cream and he just says hate and then she, her eyes turn black. OK, does she Why? hate does she hate her mom now? Is that is that what just happened or is she going to like, like what? grow up to be a serial killer? Is she going to like murder her dog? Like what just happened other than you just telling them to hate? But it's all about he's because really the mystery of this film is where is Jake? And McConaughey is trying to solve that mystery. Like he's he's basically like a detective character in this story, <laughs> which I mean, he he literally is like handed notebooks where he acquires information and he's like asking pointed, you know, interrogative questions at characters like, where is the boy? What's going on? Tell me what this happened. 
And then he does it. And and it's all about discovering the mystery of where Jake is. He kind of like, reminded me of David Bowie in The Labyrinth. Like he was doing a <laughs> goblin game. Yeah, a little bit, you know. He's like, <laughs> you know, give him his little spinny glass balls. Um, I've kidnapped Jake's brother. <laughs> I'm keeping him hostage. <laughs> And I just, it's such a strange reduction because Walter is intended to be this malevolent force. Like he is evil mm-hmm. incarnate, right? He is, I mean, as he is as close to Satan as Stephen King is willing to admit that Satan can exist. And I think that was the entire idea behind the creation of this character. Because this is a character that shows up elsewhere in King's work. Yes, yes. The This is another one of King's tying the universe together characters, right? So as he's known in this film, Walter, um, I guess they call him Walter O'Dim, Walter, what, ah, what's his other name? Walter, well, he's Walter like, Paddock. He's, that's another one. Yeah, and, and he's also Randall Flagg. Randall Flagg is the other big one. Basically anybody who's named RF or WP in a Stephen King story is probably a representation of He has a mean sounding name. <laughs> and, it's just, it's so strange to see him reduced to a character who is confused a lot of the time. Like, he's just kind of like, where is this kid? What is going on with this kid? And I'm like, you're a wizard, right? <laughs> like, aren't you a wizard? Couldn't you just find him? He has all these, like, glass balls in a box in his office that he can just pop open and see where Roland is. Well, I'm like, can't you just do that with Jake then? Like, do you well, have some kind of special connection with Roland that lets your glass balls, like, observe him from afar? It's like the I, crystal it's just, balls it's, in the labyrinth. <laughs> again, it feels like a performance that was absolutely savaged in the editing room. Yeah. To its bare minimum components for him to exist in the film. And as a result, it makes Matthew McConaughey look bad. Like, you hear all the time that as, a, as an actor, ultimately your performance is in the hands of your director. Because you give them what they ask for or you give them, you know, the takes that you think are appropriate. But ultimately, the director and the editor sit down and decide, how are we going to shape this? Which take are we going to use? Which moment from this scene are we going to keep? Which, you know, through line are we going to establish for this character? And somebody just screwed up in this movie. I don't I I hesitate to put it on McConaughey because I really don't think that it would be this scattered and strange. If we could see an entire he's, picture, I, I could be wrong. He's not a bad actor. No, I just don't. I don't see how you could squeeze a performance like this out of him without doing something. What did you do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it, it feels like runtime, right? It feels like yeah. there is there's one scene on the deleted scenes that is. Um, I think it's supposed to take place because Jake and Roland continue on their journey. They go into this dark forest and they find like the Pennywise carnival because this movie wants to be like, eh, see, we understand the Stephen King. It's connection. so connected. Oh, it's a theme like, park. Oh. Oh, uh, whatever. Yeah. Um, but so they, they go on and, you know, so we're, we're we, we see them eventually. They run up against some of the dark beings, right? So, Walter fires another beam of magic power at the or a beam of psychic energy from children at the dark tower and it disrupts things. And then like bits of the darkness come through. And there was a deleted scene that I think was supposed to be a tag to that scene. Like it was supposed to go on where some act like a bunch of them actually came through instead of just the one that wound up coming through in the film and the special effects that they were in progress on for them 
I mean, it, it, it looked like they were sprites from, from the original doom. Like that's Ooh. what they looked like. It was so bad. Oh. And I, th- I think this movie ran out of money or, or the studio decided to not invest any more money in it. So I have, I have a sneaking suspicion that a lot of what we see on screen here is what they were allowed to finish and that, and nothing else. And, and I think that that kind of shows it just, it feels chopped up. It feels like there are pieces of the story that are not present. Um, you know, seen, not found <laughs> that, that kind <laughs> of stuff. And, and so like Walter, I think that he's the character that's most savage by this. They try to preserve as much of the Roland stuff as they can once he's in the film. Cause once Roland appears in the film, he's in it for the rest of it. Like he, he is, is a constant presence in almost every scene from then on. But it's very hard to take him seriously as a main character because we just haven't spent no, it, enough time. With this him. is Jake's movie. And it's my, again, that's my biggest beef with this movie is it makes this a movie about Jake Chambers and not Roland. And that's, I don't care about Jake Chambers. Like I care about Jake Chambers in his way, in the way that he relates to Roland's quest for the dark tower. Yes. But I do not care about like Jake's emotional states. Like I just don't. And nothing, I don't, and nothing in the movie has has convinced me to either. I don't know any dark tower fans who feel that way either. Yeah. I, I don't know any Jake Chambers stands, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's Susanna stands, for sure, which the <laughs> fact that she's not even in this movie is just like, what? Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, there's I mean, so much that they didn't do. There's so much that didn't happen and that didn't make it in. And I, and I expected that. But I also expected certain things might be prioritized. And, mm-hmm. and I, feel like, I feel like McConaughey's performance I, I i was kind of excited when i heard that he was cast because i thought well that'll be interesting you yeah know, at the very something least a little bit spicy at the very least it'll be interesting right it maybe not who I, same with roland like maybe not who i would have pictured maybe not the casting i would have made but maybe this will go somewhere cool and nope <laughs> it just <laughs> not a doesn't I, the, and and uh, that, that was one of the things that I really expected to see. I expected them to kind of take that character as as far as they could, especially casting an actor like that, who's kind of known for taking his performances to the next level. Yeah, totally. Now, the other thing that I want to point out here, because while they're in the woods, uh, a lot of stuff happens, right? We get the Pennywise, the clown, carnival, whatever. Mm. But... Then they meet the darkness or some of the dark creatures who squirt their way through the fabric of reality, whatever. Um, One of them tries to lure Jake away by pretending to be his dad, then pretends to be Roland's dad. And, you know, we get this nice little parallel of like, oh, they both lost their dads. Oh, it's like we didn't I didn't I didn't need that movie, but okay. But on I've again, I've watched this three times. Um pay very close attention to Tom Taylor's hair in those scenes. Cause Jake has, let, let's go ahead and call it the tussled look, right? The bedhead yeah. look, um, yeah. which again in 2017 was kind of dead, but whatever. Um, but you know, the kids, the kids might like the kids, it. the kids dig the bedhead. Uh, that haircut is not in any of those scenes. Oh, uh, he has an extremely different haircut. It's about the same length or close 
but it's not nearly as shaggy and it's cut very differently, which means that all of these scenes, all of them are reshoots. Every bit of them. And I think it's because, again, the conflict with the darkness in the forest was meant to be much larger and much more to scale to establish threat. And they didn't have the money for it. So they reshot it all to be like one monster in the dark that we can animate very, very cheaply. <laughs> like it just, and it happens a couple more times. The end, uh, the, the very last sequences of them in New York, like getting the hot dog or whatever, it's the same haircut. Um, which tells me that the ending was a reshoot, that that was not the original ending of the film, which again, that happens. I don't want to make it seem like reshoots are bad. Great things happen on reshoots. The, the I am Iron Man response to Thanos in our, in Avengers Endgame. Great moment. Absolutely a reshoot. Supposedly that one was some production assistant being like talking to somebody and being like, you know what he should have said after they shot it. And then the, or no, it was the editor. It was the editor of the film. He, they were sitting in the editing room, editing that scene. And he turned around and he said, you know what he should have said? And they were like, uh, please call Robert Downey Jr. now and uh, get him into a room with a green screen. We and, will fix this. And we're going to go <laughs> ahead and just fix that. Because, uh, yes, you are correct, editor for editor friend man. Um, and give that man a million dollars. Yeah, I'm sure he got a nice <laughs> he got a nice Marvel bonus that that film. Um, give that man one percent. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Give that man point zero one percent. But the you know, so reshoots aren't bad, but these are reshoot. These are patch reshoot reshoots. These are to fix problems in the film created either through budgetary issues or somebody saying, we don't want to see that happen. Um, they're not reshoots where they're like, Hey, we need to add this little thing in here. Or, you know, we realized we didn't necessarily have this bridge between scene A and scene B. So we got to kind of stitch that together better. This is like our idea for how this film was going to work is no longer valid. And so we are changing it. And, and those don't generally go well and they don't go well here. Um, so Roland gets attacked by a thing and, and he drops his gun. Jake goes for the gun and then gets, you know, chased. And you could tell somebody said, we need an action beat. We have to have something happen because not much has happened in the film at this point. I mean, like that's the other yeah, thing we're, I mean, for, we're 40 minutes into a 95 minute movie. And the most exciting thing that has happened is Jake ran away from some rad people and jumped off a balcony. Right. Like, am I wrong? That no, that's that is it. And I don't have a problem with that. No, I mean, I don't need myself because I don't think the Dark Tower needed to be an action movie. But I can see that studio executive. I can see that person, that suit. You know, we all have that idea of like the mm -hmm. Hollywood suits. I don't even know if that's a real person. Where's the boobs? But in my mind, where's the boobs, it's a real Tommy? Person. Yeah, like it's <laughs> you know, it's it's. It's that person you know, making demands and and not really understanding, you know, the, the creative thrust of a project and and whether or not that person really exists, you know, that that remains to be seen. But we've heard enough. Yeah, about, I mean, you know, you know the troubled productions to know that that's that is a reality. And it feels like this movie just suffered under that that idea right. of, of the Hollywood executive, because. If there is a if there is a segment of the population that would not understand the Dark Tower, I am pretty much going to say it's it's the Hollywood executive. Yeah. Right. Like there's nothing marketable about the Dark Tower. It doesn't make sense that the Dark Tower has become this. This 
absolutely like painstakingly crafted and beloved thing. Like there's no explanation for it. There's nothing about it that should have made that work, but it did. But if you try to, this is not a movie you can elevator pitch. Yeah. There is no elevator pitch for the dark tower apart from the first line. Yeah. <laughs> the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. I get that. But would have been so cool. Would have been so cool. <laughs> Uh, but instead, no, let's look at a 14 year old boy from New York who just has dreams. Like, let's just let's just see. Let's just see New York again. Right. Because everybody loves a New York skyline in their movie. So, you know, the the adventure is kicking off now. Finally, I guess Roland's finally shooting things with his gun, which seems good. Um, seems like a thing you'd want to have in your movie about a gunslinger. But uh, <laughs> Nah. Then Walter finally, the, the Walter the wizard, Walter who is capable of commanding anyone and bending them to his will, finally figures out that Jake like lives in an apartment in New York and goes there. Why didn't they just call him Walter the wizard? I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I do like that Jake does what he says. His name's Walter. He's like, wait, his name's Walter? Like, I, I like that somebody did that because that's the point, you know, like that's the, the subversive nature of Stephen King's villains is that. For Stephen King, the villain is the guy who appears normal to everyone else. Yeah. He's the most he's the most nondescript guy because villains in Stephen King's world, and, and I'm not talking about like Pennywise villains, although Pennywise dressed as a clown, when that idea was was architected, that was the whole point. Was that the clown is someone you don't pay attention to. It's like no big deal. Yeah. It's just a little goofy. And then there's this terror underneath. Like so Stephen King has this idea that all the villains the villain's the priest, right? It's the priest that everybody thought was their friend. No, he's actually a vampire. Um, you know, it's it's you know the the you know the guy down the street that nobody pays attention to is actually this horrific murderer. So you know, Leland Gaunt and Needful Things, he's just just an old man, right? You know, but yet he's the devil. So I mean, I he, is, he was the real he devil. was the actual devil. Yes, um, Leland Gaunt is another. One of Stephen King's or Gaunt in general. It's another Stephen King name for evil. But so he finally shows up. And, and I must say that this is the scene that feels the most cohesive in terms of Walter's character. Um, because Walter then proceeds to, to basically kill Jake's parents while extracting the last bit of information from them that he feels he needs. Despite the fact that he's a wizard, he knows everything. Um, no, he doesn't. He doesn't, apparently. <laughs> no. And and this is the one that I, I feel is is the most good because Walter doesn't just kill. Walter rips you apart before he kills you. The the pain is the precursor, right? And that's he what he loves in doing this. Yeah, and and this is the scene where we really finally get to see him kind of glory in that. And I think McConaughey does a, a good job in that sequence, just establishing menace. Like, why should we even be afraid of this guy? Up until this point, he's gotten most of the comedy bits. Mm. Like, he's been the the relief, the humorous relief has been Walter being like, okay, kill your kill yourselves. Calm down, everybody. You ain't seen nothing yet. These two rat people are gonna rip each other apart right in front of you. Coroners will be called. People will wonder where are these rat people coming from? Because their physiology is not gonna be human once we find their dead bodies. Uh, but don't worry about it. It's fine. I'm the all-powerful man in black, Walter Paddock. It's just, again, that's the kind of stuff that in a movie like this just breaks it all apart. 
and, and you and even if you're just passively watching, you go like, "Wait, what?" And what? that I found myself doing that, and I, I am a person who understands the foundation of the book series. I can't imagine not knowing anything about the books and watching this. Yes, no, I'm, I, I, my kids did okay with it. Um, my son loved Roland. Like he talked about Roland for days after that. He's like, Dad, that guy was so cool. And I'm like, I know that character is great. Um, you know, but that was all that stuck. Like everything else was just meaningless. Um, and and it's it, it and you see why. There's nothing to grab onto here. There's there's nothing to sink your teeth into and say this is good, save for Idris Elba's Roland. Like he's the only thing. Yeah, that's it. And and so. You know, the the thrust of the story, they're in Midworld now. I, I hate the way Midworld looks. It's it's it doesn't look like anything. No, it's just I understand it's supposed to be like a collection of everything. Right. Like it's it's the dumping ground for all time. But everybody just wears flannel. It didn't even look like a patchwork of anything. It didn't. No, it just looked like the 30s. <laughs> Midworld <laughs> is so cool in my mind that is just so cool. such yeah. a neat dimension to work with and there were so many neat set pieces that king designed in those books and places that i genuinely looked forward to seeing how a director would put that on screen mm -hmm. and i guess the answer is they wouldn't <laughs> you know what it, they wouldn't do any of it you know what it looked like to me um and this is this is so insulting to this film, but I have to say it. So you remember on Stargate SG-1 when they'd go through the Stargate and they'd find like a little crap hole planet with like 10 people mm -hmm. on it. And it was mm -hmm. it was the same set that they used last week, but they just kind of yeah, threw yep. some more crap around. You could even see the same props, but they would just, you know, recolor just, something. You know, we'd repaint that paint brown, it. you know, or something. And this, this shanty town that they spend the next 50, goddamn minutes in this 95 so minute movie in horrible that's all it is it's a stargate sg1 level yeah town like that is what this thing looks like it's it's the the raw hand cut wood shanties just crap hanging everywhere for no reason chairs that look like they just somebody went to the local flea market and just grabbed whatever they could find for three bucks it's just it just looks terrible. It's it doesn't look like an like an alien place or like a unique place. It just looks bad. And it's so disappointing. You know, they they make this grand gesture of him looking up at the sky and seeing the multiple moons, which, you know, again, it's an iconic, you know, visual component of Midworld. But then it's just backed up by nothing. And and I, I get that they wanted to have like the future tech that nobody knew quite knew how it worked because it was so old thing because that is a big part of the later books. I, I get that. But then at the same time, I'm like, OK, well, you have this giant bunker in the mountain with like halls and rooms and lights. Why don't you live there instead of in these yeah. shoddily constructed buildings out? Not in that place. Right. Like I, I just finished a, a book, uh, the first book in a series by a guy named Scott Lynch uh, is the gentleman bastard series. Uh, it was called the lies of Locke Lamora. 
very good very good not i didn't love it there were uh he spends like 150 pages explaining how this thief like steals a suit of clothing that he needs for a party that he has to go to and i was like why are we doing this Mm. why why okay why why he's a thief just go steal the clothes just go to a shop and steal them. Why are, why do we have to go through all these things? Like he's trying to like convince bankers to let him loan clothes. It just, it, I was like, why are we doing this? But one of the things that that, the, the, the world of, of that thing is that it's supposed to be like Venice, right? So it's like a city on the water kind of thing, but the city is actually built on this alien race, like the remnants of their society. And it's so ancient and so alien to them that they just kind of live in those spaces, but they don't understand how they work or what they do. They like glow in the sunlight and that's where they get like their artificial light at night. Cause the, the stuff is like glow in the dark basically. But it's like, it's one of the things he does a very good job of showing how like, okay, when you have a technology that you don't understand that exists in your society, you kind of work around it, right? You build into it and you use the pieces of it that makes sense to you and and these people haven't done that like they have water pumps and stuff from it but they're not using any of this technology in an interesting way even though they seem to have some mastery of it it just it doesn't make sense and it just looks crappy and it was really frustrating because it was this is the only slice of midworld that we get in this movie this is it that's it and it's so boring it looks like it looks like a scene from witness it's just amish people standing around (laughs) It's like, well, come on over and get into the cart. We'll take you up to the store. Let you check out our new furniture. It's quite nice. It's like, what is happening? This is Midworld? I I don't get it. I was so looking forward to seeing the interpretation of Midworld. You know, I was was really, really looking forward to seeing how someone would would bring those things to life. And, And like I said, the answer is... They didn't. They just didn't. They just, they just didn't bypass it. it. They didn't even try. <laughs> yeah, they're like it was too hard. Here's this studio backlot. Uh, we got some old buildings from Gunsmoke still standing. You just want to use those? We'll just use those. Remember Gunsmoke? Yeah, just that was familiar. cool. Um, so Roland's infected with something from his fight with the darkness. I don't know what. It's never explained. Apparently, it's bad. It seems like just an excuse to get him out of the picture for a little bit, so that Jake can fuck up terribly and get himself into trouble. Um, and and here's where the movie just it it goes completely off the rails for me because the plan becomes that they're going to go back to Jake's world. And so they're going to open a portal back to Jake's world that for reasons. Yeah. Um, there doesn't seem to be any, any reason to do this. Um, I know they, they give some in the movie and I'm not going to repeat them here because who cares, but basically it seems like Roland needs medicine for one and Jake believes they can find that medicine there, but I guess they also want to kind of stay away from Walter, even though they don't really know the Walter where Walter is or what Walter is doing. It, it's just, it's very, it's very ill advised. And it seems like this movie had an idea that they wanted to do the reverse fish out of water. So Jake comes to Midworld, and he's the fish out of water. Now we get to take Roland to our world and he becomes the fish out of water. 
which to be fair is basically the second book of the series. Like that's what happens. So Roland comes to our world. He meets the other sort of main characters of the, the story. This was weirdly cutesy though. Yeah. But this is played was- for, for like cute laughs, you know, uh, like Roland's like, so they have bullets in your world. And Jake's like, uh, you're, you're, you're going to like my world a lot. And it's like, well, okay. Yes, like, okay. you're correct. Okay. Um, but it's again, it, it's it's played for laughs that I don't just, seem appropriate I don't given think the cringy humor yeah. really works that well. I just don't remember a lot of cringy humor in the Dark Tower books. No, the Dark again, Tower books you know, are serious as a heart attack, man. I mean, like there are moments of absurdist humor, like just weird stuff that happens, and Roland just kind of goes like, okay, you know, that kind of thing. But he's a stoic. I mean, Roland's like Hellboy, you know, or he's kind of sarcastic and funny at times, but for the most part, he's just like, oh crap. And his responses to things tend to be funny, but I don't know. I just, the whole tone was very off-putting. It was just, it was weird. It was a weird choice. My biggest issue with this movie is that the characters are never, they're never together. Like everybody's just being shot on separate sound stages. And, and it feels like it, like all movies are that like I, I know that, but this movie feels like just interconnect intercut scenes of characters in various places doing things. And there's nothing cohesive about what we're being shown. And that just yeah. these action sequences in this village as it's burning. Cause of course they get attacked. The rat people show up to, or I don't even know if it is the rat people. There's other races that we, that are in the dark tower series that get name checked here. I think it's rat people. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Ultimately, it doesn't, it doesn't matter because <laughs> they all get killed and nothing happens. It's just an action scene. And we finally do get to see Roland do cool stuff with his guns. Finally. I mean, again, OK, so I'm going to we are 58 minutes into this 95 minute movie and Roland is finally shooting his guns with any degree of regularity. Yeah. And that's just a problem. It's it's a problem. Right. And it's not like I want Roland to just be like, you know, gun shooting man. Like he's more than that. But he is a gunslinger and he shoots things. That's kind of his main way of dealing with problems. I like that scene in in Indiana Jones where he just shoots the guy with the sword. That's just what Roland does all the time. Like that's his, that's how he fixes things. Is there somebody in my way? He's built off of a, of a trope that is that. Like that's the whole, that's the whole thing. The Clint Eastwood thing. Yeah. I'm just going (laughs) to shoot you. Just took that away. (laughs) <laughs> and I guess we're supposed to care about these midworld people because we like see their village burning and they're trying to like, you know, put it out with water and, and but I don't kids care. like, oh, no. And I, I OK, so I, I, let's real quick. Let's just say that the action in this movie, while shot badly, is staged well. Um, basically, what they show is that Roland is is fully capable of what we would generally call like close quarters combat with guns. And most of that looks good. Um, again, I, Nicola, Nicolaj Arcel, I don't think knows how to stage an action sequence. Uh, there's a bit of speed ratcheting here. There's a bit of like under cranking to make stuff look faster, which is, is pretty typical at this point. But I just don't think he knows how to really shoot an action sequence very well. And the, the final action sequence of the film is, is just a, a wonderful montage of 
bad ways to shoot action. But I like what I like the style of fighting that Roland has. It feels very, very visceral, very in your face. You know, someone who has been trained to use a gun as more than a long range offensive weapon, right? Like this is, it's a a piece, it's an extension of him, right? Roland doesn't need a knife because the gun is fine kind of thing. Um, And so like the, I'm going to say the signature action scene of this film occurs in this moment as Roland is listening and using all of his senses and, and figuring out where Jake is being dragged to. And then he fires a single bullet through like 50 different things and, and shoots the guy in the head. And you know what? It's cool. It's real cool. Yeah. It's a cool moment. Yeah. Works super well. He doesn't even look at the guy. He just uses his ears to shoot and, and he nails the guy in the head and it's awesome. Super cool. I would have loved if this movie about a gunslinger had more things in it that were it would have, cool like that. It would have been, <laughs> would have been nice if this was in a better movie. Um, cool. And I will, I will say, again, I, as I said, I watched this with my family and, and my son was like, whoa, that was cool, dad. I was like, yeah, I, I know. I know it was cool, buddy. I really wish they'd have done a few more things like don't that. Don't get used to it. Yeah, don't. It's not going to show up in the movie much more. it's going to start happening because it's not. Um, but yeah, I mean, all the, all that stuff is fine. Like that's that's well architected and, and a, a nice extension of the type of of abilities that we see Roland capable of executing in the books. Eventually, um, so they they portal back to Earth, and now it becomes about finding, you know, where all the rat people are and other portals, and this things just turn very science fiction. At this point, and the Dark Tower has those elements. It absolutely does. But this film just begins to turn this into a sci-fi movie where it's, it's all about portals and, and jumping around in space time. And, and it's just kind of silly. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to articulate because I don't hate any of these scenes. Again, Idris Elba is acting the hell out of them. He's a good fish out of water for what he's given. But their mission is very unclear the ability of Walter to track them and how he's tracking them and where he's keeping track of them is unclear. Again, this just feels like a movie that there are pieces missing, right? There's just elements that are not present. And as a result, we are just kind of lost. And, and if that was intentional mission accomplished, well done, Nicolaj Arcel, you did it. But I'm just as confused why? as all these characters must be. Why would <laughs> anyone want to do that i just don't i don't understand the sequence of events that brought this movie into being because it doesn't it defies book movie logic because mm-hmm. i i thought that this would be like the first of 20 oh easily <laughs> you know, that they were gonna yeah. they were gonna milk these seven books into into a, a television series it's that, its own mcu but, right yeah, yeah. it and it it has enough that you could do that. I mean, considering what they squeezed out of Game of Thrones and those weren't even done, mm-hmm. I think that this would be fabulous material for a television show, especially. Um, yes. But I expected something completely different. And for them to just drop this, this singular package 
in everyone's lap and just sort of slink away, almost like the cat that brings you a dead thing and just leaves it on the doorstep. <laughs> Look at what I did. I made Look at what I accomplished. You. <laughs> I found this thing that is beautiful and I killed it. That's right. I brought it to you. I hope you love it as much as I do. Enjoy. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, they, they, they go back to our world. Roland gets some antibiotics. He apparently has fast healing Superman abilities, so he heals fast. They go to the gun store. They get guns. And then Jake remembers, ah, the homeless man who seemed to know what was going on. <laughs> Let's find random homeless man in New York and see if we can discover our next steps. So that's my other my, my third and final beef with this movie is that our main characters have no internal agency at all. They are leaves mm. blown on the wind of the plot's fancy. And yeah. in 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 a very raw sense that is set up in payoff, we saw the homeless man earlier and he seemed to know what was going on. Payoff, now the homeless man returns to help us understand what's going on. Like I, I get it. Like it, it works. It, it's, it's not out of nowhere. Thank you movie. <laughs> but who in the world, what 14 year old boy when trying to figure out how to stop an incredible wizard <laughs> think, aha, the homeless man, that's where I'll go. And it's just, it's, it's nonsensical. And then all the homeless man really gives them is nothing is gives them nothing. I think there was a pig sign. Oh my God. So <laughs> stupid. Like what, just, what a waste of a scene, right? Oh, I think there were, I think I saw a pig sign there when they dragged me off, but they didn't kill me. They kill everybody else. I mean, they literally wear suits of human skin, but I was left alive because I'm a homeless man. And and then all that leads to Jake discovering that his his family is dead. And here Elba really gets to finally like bite into an emotionally meaty scene. Um, unfortunately, it has it has the kid in it attempting to to emote and cry and not doing a very good job of that uh, at this yeah, point. Definitely not a Haley Joel Osment. No, no. Here Haley Joel pulls ahead firmly into the lead uh, in our <laughs> we need a little kid who can cry in our, in our uh child's uh our horse race of child actors Haley joel osmond has just pulled into the lead um <laughs> i'm gonna name my race horse Haley joel osmond <laughs> Haley joel take us away but he's, he's trying real hard and and he's doing okay but but elba just kills it because his focus is you know walter's doing this to try and you know detect you because now they have psychic Detectors everywhere. <laughs> uh, this movie, this movie just doesn't, it doesn't have any rules at all. I mean, Walter has apparently just put people around the city in various locations to detect psychic energies. Oh my God. Uh, in the hopes of realizing and recognizing where Jake is. This is the same Walter that in a previous scene, just scant moments ago, threw a ball on a table and then had a, a complete visual of everything that Roland was doing in that moment. And, uh, yeah. but now he's just got to have rat people running around New York, trying to feel psychic vibrations in order to track him down. So sure. Got to get this show on the road. <laughs> but I, I love that 
when when the scene ends, like Idris Elba just picks up that whole ass kid. He's like a 40 year old. Idris Elba just wraps his arm around him and just basically like puts him on his shoulder like a baby. He's like, ladies and gentlemen, my dream. Idris Elba to pick me up in his big arms. Idris Elba, you are just a glorious human being, sir. Like just just wraps those haunches around him, just lifts him up, just like a whole ass man. Just, I mean, like I, I don't, I don't like the idea of of Roland being a father figure, but like I like Idris Elba doing those things. Yeah, so no, I'll let the movie get away it. with that. I mean, it, it's one of those things you can see. Like Elba is is such such a capable actor, and was probably given so little to do in this film that he's just. Uh, he's got to be just operating on pure instinct at this point to try and get something across, something emotive um, with this character. And and it, it works. Like I said, it's it's not the gunslinger of the books. It's not Roland Deschain as as Stephen King articulated him in those novels. Me, but you know, I, I'm not but against okay. this that's, interpretation. Yeah. You know, I'm not against the movie trying this if it had tried it a bit more successfully. Right. Yeah. It again, a lot of this just comes down to to what end. Right. If if this is supposed to are you turning this into a buddy cop movie? Is that what this is going to be? Uh-huh. If you did get to make another one, is this Roland the Roland and Jake show? Is that what you're trying to set up? Because it feels like that's what you're trying to set up. Right. That these two are going to take on whatever the monsters are after you've killed Walter O'Dim. Um, but it's it's very interesting. And and I, I wish it had just been executed in a better film. If this was a more complete film with characters that I, I gave a shit about outside of my attachment to them that has nothing to do with this movie, then I might have been on board, you know, and, and the fact that Elba gets me to feel anything about this relationship is a testament to his skill as an actor. Um, so then we get an, our, our the shooting scene. Uh, so. We get the Gunslinger's Creed in this movie three times. I I love the Gunslinger's Creed. Um, it's beautifully written. It's it's the same kind of beautifully written that you get when like Yoda is expressing wisdom to Luke. It it doesn't make any sense when you think about it. But it's cool. But it's cool. It's just cool. It sounds cool, right? I kill with my sound cool I when I say my it. heart. <laughs> I don't kill with my hand. I kill with my heart. Cause I want you dead with my heart. It's like, yeah, I like that. That's cool. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of do. Um, and so we, we get them shooting again. And of course we heard it once before with Roland and his father in the ravine. And then we get it here again with Jake and, and he will recite it again at the end of this film in the final confrontation. Um, then we get the gun store scene, which is a nice little, uh, I'm going to call it an appropriation of the scene in Terminator where he walks in and just, you know, demands the, the guns, you know, pulls, yeah. pulls kilowatt rifle in the 40 watt range, you know, <laughs> just what you see, man, you know, it's, like, it's all good. It's whatever, you know, but, but Roland gets his bullets early today. Yeah. Um, and, and it's fine. But then Walter just shows, shows up, up, just appears, uh, in a, the, in the first of many reshot scenes in this sequence, because um, in a lot of these sequences, uh, Matthew McConaughey, McConaughey is in a very 
very bad wig, uh, a super obvious wig. That, hair plugs. Uh, wow. Just <laughs> the hair was so bad. I mean, it looked like it looked like a nice and easy box dye. It's so bad. Hair black. I mean, I know he's the man in black and I'm fine with that. But if you were desperate to have a character whose hair is that black, then hire an actor whose hair is that black. Um, yeah. Because yeah, McConaughey's hair is a lovely chestnut brown with lovely, you know, but sort of strawberry Sometimes even a highlights. sandy blonde when he's, when he's doing his bongos in the summer. <laughs> um, I just, wow, the makeup. I, I don't understand how Roland could look so cool. Yeah. And then they make Walter look so bad. <laughs> yeah, it just it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. And it's super obvious throughout the remainder of the film when he has the wig and when he doesn't. Uh his skin color is way off. Like you could tell that he had gone somewhere and, and I think he had actually gotten a deeper tan than he had when they were filming the most of this. So they actually had to use makeup to scale his tan back, and it looks bad. Just so bad. And and again, none of this is the actor's fault. None of it's the costume department's fault. This is like we we have emergency things that we need to fix stuff and it just doesn't work. It just doesn't look good. And so our our final sequence really is is just Roland. Jake gets kidnapped somehow because they get separated. There's a door. I, I don't know. They get separated. The kid gets kidnapped by the rat people. They're going to take him back to Midworld to throw him in the chair and Roland has to rescue him. Jackie Earl Haley is there. And why? <laughs> Nobody knows. Um, Least of all him. And yeah, he's I, I, again, I'm sure he's enjoying that paycheck that bought him a, a lovely <laughs> swimming pool for his third home. And and he's fine with it. But. This this final sequence, this this final action beat is just Roland shooting a bunch of nameless faceless, meaningless rat people in admittedly awesome ways. Like it oh, looks yeah. great. Um, well, it doesn't look that great, but it, it's well executed. And the stuff that he's doing is cool. Um, the other stuff in the movie looked a lot worse. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so this doesn't look as bad as that. This sequence feels very planned. This feels like a sequence that was probably in the movie from the start. And they were able to execute it for the most part in the way that it was originally envisioned. It's just too complicated to be much of anything else. Um, some of it's slapdash uh, in its final execution. Again, I, I just don't think Nicolas Jarcel is, is a very good action director. I don't, I don't think he knows how to get his coverage and his I've pieces. I've never done it before. I mean, he doesn't direct that many movies. <laughs> no, and all of them are fairly <laughs> stagey, you know, costume drama kind of things. Um, so, yeah, the, like, shooting action is really hard. It's it's an incredible challenge and you have to take a tremendous amount of time to do it well. And I, it's not something I think they had in this movie at all. So, you know, <clears throat> Roland just kind of goes after all these people. We get a lot of really cool reloading scenes uh, that it seems like that was what they were most obsessed with with Roland was this idea of quick reloading. Someone decided very early on, hey, you know how in action movies, how the hero never reloads? That's not us. We're going to every time he fires six shots, dude's going to do something to reload. Breaks down a little bit here because he's like 
you'll see him just kind of flip the gun to the side and all of a sudden it's reload reloaded. I'm okay with it because again, it's supposed to be this, you know, incredible skill that he has, but it's all intercut with the story of Jake being put inside of a chair and then a whole bunch of rat people clicking buttons like that's so we get cool action sequence right shooty 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 bangy 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 jump 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 and then hard stop full cut jake sitting in a chair grimacing Mm -hmm. you know it's it's like the phantom menace right hey we're flying we've got darth maul and qui-gon jinn fighting with swords uh here let's just take a let's take a brief pause and let's show um, a woman who is obviously not Natalie Portman running down a hallway. Um, yeah, uh, there's, there's no excuse for it. Like it just, why? I mean, they could have done so much. There's, there's enough that was happening that they did. I don't think it had to be filmed this way. No. (laughs) When the action scenes are going, it looks really good. And it makes me wish that Idris Elba. I, I I mean, they've talked about it for a long time. I wish Idris Elba could just be James Bond. Um, he's not going to be. He doesn't seem interested in being it, which is probably to his benefit. Um, but I want to I want to see a John nice Wick movie with Idris Elba. Oh, yeah. Like That'd be cool. either as the villain, which would be fine, or or just a new series, like call it Steve Wick or George Wick. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Just call it whatever you want, but have him doing those kinds of super intense action things. Like that's really what I want because he's so good at it and he looks great and he's executing well here. I I don't know. I think it's just the magic of a good actor who is also a good action star because we don't see that very often. It's still hard to pull off. Our Jason Statham's and we get our, our, you know, as much as I love him, are Arnold Schwarzeneggers, who are these, you know, competent action stars, but yet their acting is always going to be a little bit less. It's a tad. It's subpar. always going to leave something to be desired. Um, but Idris Elba has this great physical presence. He has, you know, incredible acting chops. It would just be really nice to see somebody marry those things together. Mm-hmm. And he's he and can do this it. Movie could have been it. <laughs> Did you see Hobbs and but Shaw? It was not. No. You might watch it if if you want to see him in a, a pure action role. I, it, I, it's not a good one. That's the problem. But Hobbs <laughs> and Shaw is not a good movie. It's two hours and forty five minutes, and it's like, why? What is happening? Um, but he is really good in it, and he gets a couple of really fantastic action scenes and fight sequences in it, and he's great. You know, and you can tell he's just having a good time. He's enjoying himself and the paycheck, I'm sure. Um, But yeah, I I just I wish he would do something more serious and really cool um, with that skill, because it it doesn't seem like that has come together and congealed just yet. So (sighs) Roland does the shooty shooty thing. Jake is using his psychic abilities to hold open the science fiction portal. They're trying to close it. They want to close it, but Jake is using his brain to hold it open. His shine. His sh- you have to call it that's the shine. That's true. It's his shine. <laughs> You're contractually obligated 
It's <laughs> if you didn't know, it was the same. It's the shine. It's it's the same. And then we get our our final battle between the gunslinger and the man in black, mm. which involves the man in black lifting objects telepathically to block his bullets. I hate. Okay, I hate when movies have wizard battles. <laughs> I hate them. I hate wizard battles just in general. I hate the whole idea of it because it's never not going to look like a video game uh-huh. and it's never not going to be awful. And the best way to have wizards fight each other is to get it done very quickly. Like in the Lord of the right. Rings. Yeah. I was just going to say, this is the Gandalf and Saruman fight. This can only go on so long. And, and mm, go this goes on far too long. And just the faces that Matthew McConaughey is making, because he clearly is not an actor who is good with green screen. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he's, he's acting against Idris Elba here. I don't think they're in the same no. location. I don't, I don't think he is acting against him. Because if you look very carefully at this sequence, they are never in the same shot together. No, they are not. Uh, there is, is one sh- one or two shots where there's a man at the end of the hallway who could be Matthew McConaughey, but he's in shadow, and I really don't think it's him. I just don't. Uh, I, it, I don't see how or why it would be. I mean, with the rest <clears> of the, the movie, the way that it's shot, the way that it's, it's treated, I don't know why they would care. I don't feel like the... I don't feel like anyone would care that the actors weren't in the same room. Yeah, I, I just, I don't think they were. I think their reshoot schedules were different. And I think they all had to be shot separately, including Tom Taylor. Like, I don't think Tom Taylor is anywhere near these people while this is happening. Um, and it's one of the most awkward final battles of this type that I, I've ever seen. I, it's just so strange and does not keep with any of the other things we've seen in this already very brief and very confusing movie. It, it just doesn't work. It doesn't hang. I mean, like Roland defeats him in a cool way. I mean, he shoots a, I guess he shoots a bullet (laughs) with another bullet to change its trajectory, which cool. It's cool. I mean, yay. I just don't know how to feel. I don't know what I was supposed to feel about anything that the movie was showing. Yeah. And and the fact that McConaughey gets taken out so easily. I mean, I, I, I'm going to say easily because it was easy. Yeah. I, I just don't, I don't get it. Like, it, granted, it's an impossible shot. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a, a probability defining or, or probability denying shot. Like, it, it makes no sense that he would, would win in this way. But he does, and then he, you know, shoots the the little. Okay, he he shoots Jake's like strapped to the chair, right? He shoots one of the bonds on the chair, and then Jake immediately comes through the portal. And we've been shown repeatedly that that chair is like sixty feet away from that portal, easy. And yeah. there are a host of rat people in between the two of them. But Jake like pops out of the chair and then it's just immediately through the door. It's like, ah, I made it. Because he was running. <laughs> it just, it, <laughs> a film that has already felt like a narrative mess just completely falls apart in this sequence. It's not uncool. There are cool things in it. Moments of coolness occur. But those moments are ultimately 
more frustrating because the rest of the sequence is so bad. Yes, exactly. And in, even even if even if you were not, and you know, and I say this a lot, even if you're not like so much of a, a type that you're paying attention to like shots and editing and stuff like that, you're still going to sense that this is off. Right. Yeah. Even like if you're not just, a film person, you're going to leave this scratching your head and it's like, what the hell happened in that scene? Right. Like what, what did I just watch? Why did he win? What did he do that was so difficult for the, the wizard man to not be able to see his way through? Um, yeah. It's, it's again, it's, it's bewildering and it's just smacks of, we need a way to end this movie and, and this is all we've got. And, and I just, it makes no sense. Um, we get a nice little tag on the end. He drinks a Coke and says, sugar's awesome. They make a joke about eating dogs because they're eating hot dogs. And he's like, savages. And again, I love it because Idris Elba is saying the words and he's very good at saying the words. But like, that's a, that's, that's just a misunderstanding of, of how you should use actors to to sell your movie. I mean, he is, he's the only thing to like about this he movie. Is. And that's scary. He so is, man. Like it's, I would say if you want to watch this, if you, if you get a hold of this movie or it shows up on a streaming service for free that you have access to, cause I don't know if I'd buy it again. I bought it as a black Friday sale item. Uh, I, I may have paid $3 for it maybe. And I feel like that's a reasonable price to pay for the quality that you're getting here. But if it just shows up on a streaming service and you want to just dip your toe in, I'd say skip the first 25 minutes, watch the next 30 minutes, skip 20 minutes, and then just watch the last fight scene. And you'll get everything that's worth watching in this movie. It may be a little bit more, but that's that's pretty much it. Um, Tom Taylor is back with his haircut that is nothing like his haircut in the rest of the film. And he looks about a year and a half older, which is also a problem. And we get the most baffling scene in this, which is where the gunslinger, the lone gunslinger, the gunslinger who rides alone asks the young kid to come with him. Let's go back to Midworld together. Just you and me, you got nothing here. You got nothing left for you here. Luke Skywalker, come on back with me. Shall you join the rebellion against the wizard that I just killed? Mm. Um, I don't know, man. I know it's supposed to, again, they say it over and over again. This is a sequel. This is not the the retelling. But it's bad. It's not good. It's just not a good way to end this movie. Like, I want them to be together. Sure, fine. But the whole thing, this this feels like a reshot tag. We had an afternoon on a Saturday and Idris Elba was free, so we brought him in. And, And I mean, it's so bad that you can see the fire department and police department blocking the street at the end of the shot. <laughs> and they just left it there. <laughs> like when it does the over the shoulder for the kid, the fire department truck that is blocking the street so that only the traffic approved by the production can get through is just sitting there. And you can tell they're hoping that you just don't pay attention and you're like, oh, well, it's New York. Of course, there would be a fire department truck lit. You know, sitting there on the street. It's no big. It's like no, it's no, no, it's not that. It's not that at all. I see what you're doing, movie. <laughs> Stop it. And so then they they walk back to a nondescript building. I guess it's supposed to be the the restaurant that they came through in the first place to get to New York. And and they're going to go back through that back to Midworld. And there there are roses. 
on the garage door painted and hate it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I hate the final. I actually, I, I said bad words out loud when the final shot of this movie aired. Um, because when they walked into the building, I was like, they're not going to do an off camera goofy getaway. They're not. Yep. They're not going to pull it back to the future. Yep. But we're going. You don't need roads. You don't need roads. <laughs> like, what the? F- what? <laughs> yep. That's what they did. Where we're going, we don't so need roads. And then they just bad. closed the door because we're out of money, everybody. Oh. They took back $20 million of our budget, so we, we can't finish this movie. I mean, this is a Ron Howard production. This is co-financed by Imagine Entertainment, and this is awful. So bad, dude. I I don't know. This is a hard one for me because I was so excited. Well, we mentioned Scott Wampler earlier, does the King cast, and, and we've both followed him for years as a film critic. I, I've always loved his stuff. And he told a story of... You know, at the time he was working for, um, I guess it was called Badass Digest at the time. Maybe Birth Movie Staff. I don't remember if they'd converted. I think they'd converted by then. And, you know, he is is an affirmed Dark Tower Stephen King fanatic, right? Like he loves these books and he's like, you know, so they assigned him to go review the Dark Tower movie. And he's like, I don't know if I can do it. Like, what if I just love it so much that I, I can't be impartial? I can't actually... <laughs> I can't actually like watch the film and, and not love it just because of my love for the story. And he said, and so I went into the movie and, and then the moment the movie was over, I texted my editor and I said, not a problem. (laughs) (laughs) This won't be an issue. I'm not going to have to write something glowing about it. In fact, the opposite. So full runtime on this film to credits run is one hour, 27 minutes in 87 minutes, not even the length of a TV movie. TV movies are longer than this with the commercials. I it's, it's bewildering to me how you could ever think. And again, this is a, we're a podcast where we say short movies are good. Short movie. Good. Yeah. Long movie. Sometimes bad. Long movie, for me, long movie often bad. Yeah, you know. <laughs> we should just do like cave people review movies. <laughs> long, movie, long movie Long bad. movie bad. Short movie, movie good. good. But this movie. This movie is a movie where. This movie bad. Yeah, it feels <laughs> incomplete. It feels partial. And not in the way that we're setting up for a sequel. Like the, the story we set out to tell, we did not tell. And it's it's really obvious. Like it just it feels cut up, whether it was the studio, which I would certainly suspect, or the producers who lost faith in the project, or a director who just didn't get what he needed to get in terms of the film. Um, you know, when we did The Snowman, uh, you know, several months back, I mean, that was the problem with that movie. They left 15 to 20 percent of that script unshot. They ran out of money. They ran out of budget. They didn't finish shooting the film. So when they got into the editing room, they had an incomplete movie and they just had to stitch together whatever the hell they had. So ADR dialogue, bad reshoots, whatever they could get, that's what we used. And this feels like a movie that if it wasn't in that exact same situation, it was pretty close. Just not there. And the fact that they got so many other elements right, especially the casting, is it's so maddening. 
Because could you imagine a good Dark Tower movie with this cast? Especially Elba. Maybe McConaughey we could do away with. I don't know. But yes. could you imagine a movie with, with him as Roland and getting like a five movie deal out of it? Like how awesome would that be? So by the end of that five movies have Idris Elba building the character of Roland the gunslinger as he approaches the Dark Tower and ending with him in that role. It, it, again, it's, it's a could have been a career defining role, something that people would look back on decades hence and say, man. What a great job that guy did. And now it's like, it's a the butt of jokes. Like, hey, you remember the Dark Tower film? Whoa. Me either. Dang uh-huh. it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I hate to give any more errands of grievance. I think we've, we've done more than enough at this point. But uh, let's, let's move into our, our final phase, our, our recommendation slash one thing. So, I've thought about this a lot. I'm sure you have too. But what is one thing of the many that might have been able to be done to change, to update, to alter, to rescue the Dark Tower? Um, this. I actually like the idea. I like the concept. I like the chutzpah that is required to say I'm going to turn this into one movie. Mm-hmm. And I am not going to say that this should be more than one movie, although I think it easily it's, could yeah. be. Yeah. If it were up to me, this the script would have been The Gunslinger. It would have been that book, and it would have just embraced the weirdness. Um, and maybe diluted it down, and, and you know, you could have had Jake Chambers be introduced this early and maybe retooled those events a little bit to combine some of the books, but I would have had it take place primarily in Midworld, if not entirely. Yeah. And lean in to this universe because King has spent most of his career fleshing this out in one way or another. Give it some space to be what it is. Um, I, I just wish that it had been weirder. I, I wish that it had been a little bit more of what, what the books have embraced. Um, I don't feel like the movie embraced anything that the Dark Tower is about. <laughs> no, it flattens it. It flattens it and turns yeah. it into a standard action plot. Bad man versus good man. Um, and and it, it again, you, you there's a delicate balance to watch. Sometimes you have to peel back a little bit of Stephen King's weird. You got to do it, right? It's, and it's okay. But if you take too much of it away, his plots are not really complicated or interesting enough to stand on their own. They just often aren't right. Like his plots most of the time are very straightforward, very simple, you know, easy to read, easy to understand. I think that's why they feel like they would make great movies when we read them. Yes, probably so. Cause they can just be grasped. Um, but, but they need that little, that little edge of King to make them memorable, right? It's, it's sort of, well, I I know I've referenced the prequels already in this episode, but I'll do it again. Like part of the problem with um, John Carter of Mars, which is another film I hope to do someday uh, because I I have many feelings about it. I think it's, it's maligned more than it deserved. It's, it's not a bad film, but the problem is, is that the story by Edgar Rice Burroughs that those, that movie was based on, 
has been pillaged by so many other filmmakers, especially George Lucas, who wears those, those, you know, John Carter of Mars or princess of Mars stories on his sleeve, especially in attack of the clones, the really big gladiator fight at the end with the monsters. Like that's straight out of an Edgar Rice Burroughs book. And so the problem is, is that when you go to make an adaptation of the original story that influenced all these 35 other movies that people have already seen, you get labeled as derivative. Like, Oh, this just looks like everything I've seen before. And it's like, well, no, the other movies were taking all of this doing their thing with it, but they just did it first. And, and with King, it's a little bit of the same, like a lot of his stuff you've seen before you've seen elements of these things. Cause his inspirations are very well known and he is very honest about them. So if you strip away all of the things that he adds to them to make them his own, you're just going to get something super feeling suit that feels super derivative. It's just like everything else, you know? I think that is the, the, the struggle of adapting any kind of fantasy or science fiction work into a film Mm. is that ultimately you're going to have to, I mean, we've talked about science fiction, especially, and then the tropes that make it what it is. And if you strip too much of it away, you just have people on a spaceship, people on a planet. You don't have any of the, you know, the extra spice that made that particular work of fiction what it is. And this is maybe the one, especially of Stephen King's work, this is the one series where it's going to hurt the most when you take things away. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, I I think there's really no better way to say it. Um, for me, it it just came down to time. It's just this movie needed time to breathe. It never, I mean, when I say that it never stops, that's not a compliment in this case, right? Like, oh, it's, <laughs> it just never stops. Just nonstop action. It's like, no, you need to stop and just Slow down. breathe for a minute. You You took these people up on the mountains and shot them there. And it's in the movie for 20 seconds, right? Like just sit down, have a conversation that isn't in a weird Stargate SG-1 shanty town, right? Like, Let the camera rest on someone's face for <laughs> a few beats and, and record some emotion. And em- emote, exactly. It's, it's, just so, it's just so bewildering to me how you could mess this up so badly. Um, and so just so thoroughly, like that's the thing is like, there's no piece of this movie that escapes untouched from harm save perhaps for idris elba's performance it's the only thing that emerges from this as being okay as being good and even that you know we could probably have a a back and forth about the flaws within that which again I, i don't really want to put on elba's head i think it doesn't really have much to do with him but he's great i guess you know Recommendations wise, um, I, I I will not recommend this film. Uh, this is a this is a, a like a sixty eight percent for me. It's it's below average. Watchable. I mean, it looks all right. It's shot mostly competently, um, even though it feels can, so small. You, at the, I don't know. We're at the point with filmmaking and technology where you can make a competent, passable film on an iPhone. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not, not even, even really sure skill. if I want to yeah. I want to give the movie any points in that regard because it's like, well, 
you made a movie. (laughs) You did it. You took $66 million (laughs) and you made a film. Congratulations. (laughs) And it's, it's true, you know, so giving it credit for that, I, I don't know, but um, this is not a recommend for me. The only way that I would suggest watching this film is to watch it purely for Roland uh, of Gilead and Idris Elba's performance. Um, there are a couple of McConaughey moments that are fairly interesting. Some of the special effects, as I said, look pretty good. But this is a movie that will leave you. It, it does what no movie should do, which is leave you wanting more, not because you love it, but because you have so many questions. So many unanswered, I do not understand what just happened kind of questions. And that's, that's not where you want to leave an audience, right? You want them to, to want to be in your world more. Sure. But you want them to be excited by the prospect of getting more of this movie, but there was nothing exciting about it. I wanted more, but only to satisfy the absolutely unsatisfied feeling (laughs) that I had at the end of it. Um, it wasn't because I wanted to spend more time in what this movie has shown me. Yeah. So, I mean, I, similarly, I, <laughs> I had this at 65. Um, nice. Because it's just that this, this might have passed my high school class, but it would not have done it by any, <laughs> any significant margin. Like I always Run. think of this in terms of that grading scale and I'm like, I would happily pass you. So I don't have to see you again. I'm going to ride, <laughs> ride the D train to graduation town. Um, I mean, it's just bad. Just, just not fun. It's not a fun movie. I like bad movies when a movie delights in being a movie and in being what it is and showing you what it's showing you. But I kind of felt like whoever, whether it was, you know, Nicola Barcel or whatever, um, they did not delight in making this movie. And I don't feel like the distributors, producers, or anyone delighted in showing anyone this movie. So don't see it because they don't really want you to. <laughs> yeah, <either>. nobody <laughs> wanted you to see this movie. They just wanted to release it quietly into the world and let it die and then have a, hopefully everybody else forget that it existed. Um, which <laughs> mission accomplished. You did it. Congratulations, yeah. Sony. You pulled it off. I don't ever want to think about this movie <laughs> ever again. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's a hard not recommend from us this time, folks, unfortunately, um, for something that we should be celebrating for its quality and and uh, long lasting life. Uh, this is something that we're just going to have to let fade into existence, pretend that it never happened, and hope that somebody takes another swing at it at some point in the future with a little bit more time and skill and love. Television show. Do it. Yeah, I don't know. All right. Well, where can you be found on social media if people want to yell at you about the contents of today's episode, Catherine? Please yell at me about all Stephen King-related things at Baskinator on Twitter. And if you want to yell at me about how wrong I am, you can find me at TBaskin on Twitter. Uh, you can also get us together at FPeace Theater on Twitter. That's our common Twitter account. And you can email us your uh, angry rants at failurepeace at gmail.com, uh, which we will be happy to get back to you in a reasonable amount of time if you have serious questions or things that we think are funny. We'll see. But uh, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our breakdown of The Dark Tower and our uh, recitation of the various frustrations involved in watching it yet again. 
But uh, we hope you'll be back next time for another episode of Failure Peace Theater, where we break down the disasters of Hollywood history for you. Uh, And so we will see you next time.